This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today, Caleb Brewer. Caleb is a former Army Special Forces soldier, lost both legs serving this country in Afghanistan, and is now the owner of Stick Sniper Archery in Tucson, Arizona. Be sure and check them out, sticksniper.com, Stick Sniper on Instagram, and CK Brewer on Instagram as well. And now, without further ado, Caleb Brewer. Caleb, what's up, man? What's going on? Dude, thank you for coming up. Man, I especially just finishing TAC, second TAC of the season, so Total Archery Challenge for those who are listening. And uh, Caleb Brewer, Stick Sniper Archery. Awesome. I got the hat on right here. Love it. Love what you're doing over there. But uh, before we kick off, you just warned me that if we hear some hissing during the podcast, not to worry, it's not a bomb. It's uh, it's it's the legs. So what is going on yeah. with uh, with what you have what do they do? So what does that do? It, it keeps them attached. Yeah. And so one of the biggest things with prosthetics is that you get sweaty and they want to like turn in a circle okay. or fall off you or something like that. So I have vacuum pumps, one on each side, and I can control through an app on my phone. I can set the pressure, the threshold in which it'll cycle again, check battery life and all that stuff. And so they pull pressure and keep that thing super tight to my leg, minimizes blisters, minimizes chafing and all that stuff. So I can be super active and it's about as close as I'm going to get to having a real leg again. So it's awesome. Oh, no, I'm kidding. Yeah. Did you have those from the beginning? Like when we, when we met a few years ago at the uh, veteran shoot for uh, for turtle archery challenge with black rifle, did, uh, did you have the same, same things? Yeah. Yeah. So it was doing that then. Yeah. So it, and it's just a constant um, maintenance battle because I think the people that created these vacuum pumps created them close to sea level. So when you bump up to where we're at, you know, uh -huh. seven, 10,000 feet, the air pressure is different and they sense that there's a leak. So they'll cycle a lot more. And so you hear them, it's just like a buzzing noise. Um, and the other thing I have to look for is I have like this neoprene sleeve right, mm -hmm. right here. And then I yeah. have one up top and that's what holds the pressure on. But over okay. time it wears down, it cuts a little hole, uh, you know, kind of abrasion on a, if I sit down on a rock or something like that. And um, then it, then it, that sucker will cycle. And so I have to, you know, do some immediate maintenance on it. Okay. But it's super high maintenance. Yeah. Um, but it, it keeps me going. And the reason why I had to start using these, the right side is more of a luxury um, just to make it a little better and easier for me. But the left side is kind of a necessity because after I got injured, my left knee is super short below it. Like I have like an inch, inch and a half below the knee. Um, um, and so what it does is it makes it super unstable when I'm walking. If you do a traditional socket where it's just you sit your leg inside mm -hmm. the socket and then you walk, but I don't have a, a lot of leverage. And so my knee is just wobbling like crazy. So they, from the get go back in 2015, they just put me in a vacuum pump and I've been in it ever since. No kidding. And then, uh, and up at altitude. So when we were, we're doing that, uh, total archery challenge where you did this last, mm -hmm. this last week as you're moving and it's hot here, like it was oh, yeah. pretty warm, uh, at this one. And so it's constantly adjusting. Mm -hmm. So, so on a normal day to day basis, I have, I'm on that app. I will go on there and I'll say, Hey, I want to set it at 18 PSI. That's my normal walking super tight. Yeah. And I'll say if it drops below 14, then that sucker is going to cycle and then repump it back up. But because it's cycling so often at high altitude, I jump on the app and I put the threshold to like 10. Okay. So I'll allow it to drop all the way to eight 
PSI and then it'll cycle back up because otherwise it kills a battery super quick. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And then if it's getting loose like that throughout the mountain, I get a little chafing. You uh-huh. can feel it get super loose and I'm okay. trying to go down something, but, uh, okay. Jeez. Is it batteries? Mm-hmm. So battery operated, these will give me maybe a day to two days. Okay. I also have on my right side and above the knee, um, microprocessor Bluetooth pneumatic knee with a shock in it. And that was ruggedized, created for the military for folks when they got injured overseas to stay on duty. So for like a single above the amputee, mm-hmm. it's waterproof, shockproof. It's got five-day battery life. It's got all kinds of settings. Like I can do a push-up mode where it locks it straight. I can uh, adjust how much it can bend before it locks out. Um, I can go downstairs, uphills. It has all kinds of stuff on it. It's really cool. Man, that is wild. Yeah. Jeez. And uh, when you're out hunting, then, um, like, what do you take with you as far as, uh, like, extra things? Like, yeah. you know, people, when they film a hunt, you know, you take all sorts of stuff. What are you, what are you taking for, for maintenance when you're, when you're going out in the backcountry? And are you going by yourself? You've done a bunch by yourself, haven't you? I go out by myself yeah. all the time, and I don't know. A lot of people call me crazy, but I just love it. I like to just kind of go where I want to go and do my thing and hit it hard and rest when I need to. But um, if I'm going to be near... Uh, any kind of power source or vehicle, I take goal zero battery packs, like the little, the, like the size of like a car battery. I take a couple of those and those will give me probably four or five days of charge because I got three chargers every night. If I'm going to be out in an extended period of time, like yeah. a spike camp, which two years ago, I went to the Selway in Idaho to oh, do an nice. elk hunt. We I weren't, remember that. We weren't in the Selway itself. We were just south in the Frank Church. And so we did a spike camp five miles in. So I actually took two spare pumps so I have the ones that are on my legs. I took two spare ones, popped them in my backpack, and then and then went out. And so that if those ones died, then I was able to swap these two out here. But what I found out there is that the the pumps are also susceptible to the temperature changes. So when it freezes or gets close to freezing at night, the battery freezes and they won't cycle. So I had to take the pumps off my legs every night, put them in my sleeping bag and sleep with them put them back on my legs every day or else they wouldn't cycle. It was like oh, man. tons of maintenance, but it's worth it. Cause I'm not sitting in yeah. a chair at home feeling sorry for myself. I'm out there chasing. You are crushing stuff, it. So. It's amazing. It's, it's so awesome. inspiring to see, uh, and follow you on Instagram and, and see everything that you're doing out there. I mean, you're, you're crushing it out there, but, uh, were you a calm guy? I forgot. I was, yeah, I was an 18. So the batteries then, yeah. remember the batteries? Oh my God. Did you, did you do cold weather training with, as, oh, cause yeah. I was a calm guy too. When I started, uh, in my first platoon and second platoon. And, uh, I remember the, having to put the batteries in my bag at like, gosh, when we did to Kodiak and then also in, I think Fort Lewis, we did some stuff in January. So the ground was frozen, but it was raining on us. And I remember the batteries, you know, obviously you now they go a lot quicker. So I remember putting them in my sleeping bag. It's, well. It sucks the life out of them. You can't let them touch the ground. You got to have some sort of insulated barrier and you can put them in your sleeping bag all the better. So they'll last a lot longer. Um, I think the, the combo stuff helped me a lot with the t- technology and all the uh-huh. little ins and outs of these legs um, and just tinkering with them because the people that build my legs for me, um, I go, I go through the VA, but the VA lets me go to a, a clinic in town. Okay. That's a lot easier to get everything made and they work together really in well. Tucson. Mm-hmm. It's called hanger clinic. And so there's the, it, you're allowed to choose your health care provider in that setting. So the VA will ha- be the ultimate approval of the, the payments of whatever they want to build for me. But on a day-to-day basis, I have a really good lady that works with me and creates anything I want. So like, I'll wa- I mean, I probably shouldn't say this, but I like, they'll, I'll walk in and they'll hand me a wrench and say, Hey, put this on your leg real quick. We'll be right back. Cause they know that I'll do that stuff. Like I've, 
I've taken my feet off these fiberglass feet and they're too long. So I've cut them with a hacksaw and like try to heat mold things in the oven uh, uh-huh. just to get it to work better. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to be stuck. I want to be able to do whatever I want to do. So yeah. it's been, it's been cool, but it's a lot of work, a lot of maintenance to get there. Yeah, I bet. And then does the, uh, does all the working out help you too? Do you do tweaks yeah. based off those workouts? Yeah. So I, I have different shoes and I can swap out my feet. I can unbolt the current feet that I have on, put on new feet with different shoes yeah. that are better for lifting. Um, but the gym stuff has been a lifesaver. It's, uh, it's been so good that I'm able to go out into the mountains and feel super comfortable walking yeah. around. Cause when, you know, the, unfortunately the, one of the biggest hurdles for amputees and folks in wheelchairs is curbs, ramps, stairs, grass, hills and stuff. And so early on I made it a goal of mine to be so good at using prosthetics that that stuff's not going to bother me. I want to worry about the other stuff uh-huh. and I don't want to be cause the urban jungle is pretty scary when you're, you got the mobility impairment. Yeah. So man, that is wild. Cause on the, when you see you working out, you're doing sled pulls and then you're doing yeah. deadlifts and you're doing yeah. all these amazing, amazing things. Uh, but yeah, now that you mentioned it, it seems like, yeah, that, it lets people kind of like tweak in the lab. So then when you get out there in the, the Frank church and the Selway, like you've, it's not the first time you're dealing with a certain thing because you've been you know moving around in that gym and making tweaks oh, yeah. uh, the whole time. Yeah. I got a uh, picking stuff up off the ground is the biggest thing because yeah. I don't have basically, I don't have ankles, calves. I have minimal hamstring on one side. And so I'd had to be real careful about picking things up off the ground and learning how to do it smartly because otherwise uh-huh. I got to bend my back and you can tweak it a ton. So I, th- I think since I got injured in December of 2015, I've spent hours and hours and hours in the gym finding out what works, mm-hmm. finding out what doesn't work. Um, and it's really paid huge benefits. Um, and sim- like, for instance, that we did total archery challenge the past couple of days. We did three courses um, Thursday, Friday, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And on each one, you're having to walk up and down steep hills. I'm carrying a pack. I'm carrying a bow. And I have to pick up things from the ground like arrows. Like if my arrows fall on the ground and my walking sticks fall off the ground, I have to pick it up on the side of a mountain mm-hmm. with dirt and rocks. And so I didn't get injured and I feel really good after it. So it's like, okay, I was mission success on that one. Man, so what great training. I mean, great training for everybody yeah. Yeah. going to going to tack and figuring, you know, figuring out your gear, figuring out what works, figuring out what's loose. Like it's <laughs> such a great... Uh, you know, such a great, uh, event and they have, how many do they have now? It's a, it's a lot. There's a ton. I mean, yeah. they're all over the country. And, and like you said, I feel like total archery challenge is a proving ground in the, for archery. And it's also, also like the Comic-Con archery where everybody comes, it has a great time. Yeah. The community is awesome. And you get to test your gear in the most harsh conditions you can imagine. Like what the first one that when we met in yeah. the snow basin years ago, I had never done a total archery challenge and I signed up for the John Dudley knock on course. Nice. We rode the ski lift in July all the way top of the mountain and it was snowing up there a little bit cause it was so high, you know, you're at uh-huh. 9,000 feet. And I remember going, I had myself, I had Jonathan Lopez, a dude missing one arm, yeah. shoots his both his teeth. And I had another guy, Matt Pavlin missing one leg. So here are us gimpies walking down the mountain and the first shot you come to a cliff edge and you're facing almost straight down at a 40 yard shot. And that was like, like, whoa, this yeah. just got real. And it, and it took us about nine hours to get off that mountain. It was about four hours and I broke 12 arrows, you know, and, and after that I got back and I was like, I really need to up my game after that. So serious. That's why I have you make, do I ask for a hundred or 50? I forget. I think, I think, Oh, a bunch. I yeah, ask yeah. for like a hundred yeah. every time. Yeah. Uh, am I the, do I ask for the most? Yeah. 
Good. Well, it makes sense though, because otherwise you're going to have to, everybody. <laughs> I'm going to call you back and yeah. be like, Hey, I need another 20. I need another 50. I'm like every single one of these bows right here that you built for me, a uh, hundred, like right out of the gate. Yeah, because things. I know, uh, especially with tack that you're going to lose some arrows. You're going to lose a bunch. And then the, it, it's, it, unfortunately it's not like the arrows are generally interchangeable because yeah. the way we built these ones is each arrow has a certain weight, a certain mm-hmm. front and center. And so it, it shoots it's it's basically programmed for the bow. So a bow that shoots a certain poundage needs a certain flexible flexibility of the arrow, the spine, and then the length and everything. So each bow has its own stuff that can't really be interchanged. So this last uh, this last hack that you were you were just at here in Snow Basin, um, you know maybe we shouldn't talk about it, but we will. Uh, so there were some some uh, I guess people who weren't fond of archers oh, yeah. on the hill, and I remember that from a few years ago here when we did it at. Snowbird, I think it was. You could just tell that people, you know, mountain biking through or running through, they were not pleased. Even though there are signs everywhere that said, you know, archers on course, you know, be careful. It's, you know, we've rented the the hill for the day or whatever this three day event. Um, even with those warnings, and there's, you know, there are plenty of trails mm-hmm. around that area. So it almost seems like, and I might be wrong, but uh, instead of just going to another beautiful trail on the other side of the road. Uh, they ran right through on purpose. It seems to like to prove a point. Um, and a lot of them, they did not look very nice. Unfortunately, you know, it wasn't like, Hey, can I come through? Which everyone stops and we'll let you come through of course. But it seems like when I, when I saw that, I was like, Oh man, why can't everybody just be a little nicer, a little kinder? Um, to one another and in this and so I think it happened again here mm-hmm. at this one and uh, there's some graffiti there was some so what, what happened on this time what'd you see yeah this is the first time that they've done uh, solitude in Brighton and it was going to be or it was their biggest event two different lifts two different resorts and tons of people it was a huge it was just an awesome event the the venue there was one of my favorites that I've shot so far and um, they started getting information that people were getting lost in some of these courses and then coming up like behind targets as people were shooting. And we actually saw it on Friday where we were at a target about to shoot. And all of a sudden here come three people walking straight to our target from the back in our line of fire. And we had to yell at them and, and they were shooters. They were carrying a bow and we had to yell at them, tell them to get out of the way. They didn't know where they were going, but they were following the tape. And what happens is each course is marked with either pink or orange little uh, flagging tape so yep. that you know where you're going on the trail. And um, I guess some people didn't like what was going on, so people were going out with their own pink tape or orange tape and creating their own trails and mismarking current trails and leading people behind targets and putting them in, in harm's way. And then on Sunday, I think it was either Saturday or Sunday, somebody went to the very top to a big granite face at the top of one of the ski lifts and tagged total archery challenge on the granite with spray paint so that it looked like total archery challenge was doing all these things. I'm assuming they don't want them back in the area, but I mean, the, uh, these guys had to get trail cameras out and get the sheriff's department out to start investigating what was going on. Cause it could lead to somebody getting killed, getting shot yeah. in an arrow. Yeah. That does not seem very nice to whoever is yeah. doing that. I mean, it's like if there was a, let's say there was a, a marathon out there, a trail run marathon or half marathon out there, a three day festival for runners or mountain bikers. It'd be like archers going in there, setting up targets during that time where it's clearly not appropriate uh, and shooting across a course with a bunch of runners going through on a uh, on a race day. 
Um, like that's obviously never going to happen because uh, it's not appropriate. And for those people to go out and put, like you could get somebody killed changing those trails up. And then obviously the spray paint stuff is just ridiculous. It's wild. Yeah. It's wild. I couldn't imagine somebody do it. Like being that angry enough to go like, you know, deface some beautiful part of this resort mm-hmm. just to get Total Archery Challenge out of there. I mean, it seems a little excessive to me. A little much. Yeah. So a little much. And would they feel bad if somebody got shot and killed? Some kid well, gets shot and killed because they changed the, the course um, up just because they don't yeah. want archers out there for three days out of the out of the year. <sighs> that's crazy. Yeah, that's too bad. Well, hopefully there's, uh, there's trail cameras. You never know when you're going to be on trail cam. There's been a few times that I've heard about of uh, people going in to destroy um, like a hunter's cabin or, or something like that. And on trail cam, guess what? Smile. You're on candid camera. Um, and uh, yeah. so, gosh, that's just that's just rough. So did you start thinking about that then? I mean, we're always thinking about that sort of thing, like regardless of what range we're on, if we're shooting anything, you're always thinking about what's behind that target, even if it's in a, a official setup type facility like it's just in us to make sure that things are all right and cease fire if you see anything unsafe and and all that sort of a thing but uh even with that gosh that's just that's just scary we feel a little kinder to one another yeah and i mean it's one of the rules of firearm safety know your target what's behind it and so we i work with my family because we we hiked yesterday we had 13 folks and eight shooters and um a couple of parents walking and then three kids and you know, the kids kind of wander around and they're making sure they're not going in front of the line of fire. So we're like, we're pretty on edge looking yeah. anyways. And then having that information want to make sure that nobody's behind the targets. Cause in park city last year, there were some mountain bikers coming up a trail. I think they had just bypassed where they shouldn't. And so we had some coming behind a target. So we were had to stop and let them go. And, yeah. but it's just, you just got to be aware, especially if you're going to be shooting a bow, it's just a, your responsibility to make sure you're being as safe as possible. Yeah. Oh man, the times I've done it, like those courses are, are labeled, they're very clear, like where to go. And a lot of people uh, on course you're following, it's like golf, you know, it's like yeah. you're on a, well, on a golf course, it just happens to be on a mountain, but everything's so clearly marked and said, so they do such a good job with that, that whole thing. Um, do they still have stations set up? Like we get a little snacks and stuff as you're going and, and all that. You need it. They, yeah. they put that water in, uh, usually in the, in the middle and sometimes they'll have porta potties depending on the ease of access then they'll have a speaker playing some music so you can hear it a little ways and it gives you like that little mental boost. You can hear some music. Yeah. And then turn it into yeah. a party. Yeah. Cause it's a, it's a long day. We did the black rifle course on Saturday. It's 25 targets. I think it's somewhere between three and a half and four miles. And since we had a decent group, mm-hmm. um, it took us about six hours on the mountain to get it done. Um, part of it was because they had so many people sign up. And so it got a little backed up and I, th- and they had to reroute part of that course, like you had got to the top of the ski lift and you had a mile walk to the mm. first target because of all this stuff. They had to reroute a lot of things, their targets. So it took a while and we were just smoked, but it was just a great day. It was kind of cool to see everything come to fruition because I, last year in February, I went to my family and I was like, Hey, do you guys want to shoot a boat? Do you want to go shoot total archery challenge and do a family summer vacation? And everybody said yes. And nice. then I was like, Oh man, what did I get myself into? Cause nobody shot before. So I had to get them all, like, they had to all find their own bows and everything. And then we started practicing and shooting. And last year was a little rough because tack is kind of a varsity-level shoot. It's yeah. Not they have the kids' course, though. So they still have the kids' course? Uh, Not this year. Not no, on this one. Really. They just had that, okay. that practice range. Yeah, they had a practice range. Because some, yeah. some years they have the kids' course where they have, like, dinosaurs, 3D targets set up yeah. for the kids and stuff like that. That's kind of fun. They should keep doing that. I think that would be awesome. Yeah. It, it just depends on the, the right venue. where you are. Yeah. yeah. 
But yeah, everybody had a great time. It's all smiles. Everybody's shooting a lot of, a lot of hits, a lot of broken arrows, but it's fun. <laughs> That's how it goes. That is definitely how it goes. So when you're out, um, by yourself in the places that you can carry, are you carrying pistol or are you carrying like mm-hmm. a 10 mil or something? I, I carry, I carry my 45 or my, my 40, um, my Glock. Um, it's usually when I'm down cause I'm down in Southern Arizona and Tucson mm-hmm. and usually there's the interstate 10 and anything south of the I-10, you're probably going to run across the illegals. So usually mm-hmm. when I'm carrying a pistol, it's for that purpose. Because the black bears down there and the, and the mountain lions, they I've had them and they just kind of run. So the only thing that I'm usually worried about is illegals. Um, but but typically they just want, they got a job they do and they kind of steer clear of you. But yeah. there's been situations where I'm up on top of a mountain, I come off the saddle and you see like what was like an old little foxhole, sleeping bags and pillowcases and mm-hmm. old food wrappers and stuff. So you know they're around. And if you're sitting on a hill with the tripod and binoculars glassing, you usually will see some. So if I'm south of the interstate, I'm definitely carrying a pistol when I'm by myself. But um, north of it, usually not so much. I'll have one. I'll have one with me, like in the truck or something. Yeah. But it, there's not really a huge need for it. And they because they've already met up with their next mode of transportation by then, and they're moving up into the rest of the United States. Yeah, you got the inter- uh, I-19 that comes from Nogales all the way up and intersects with Tucson where it ends, mm. and then uh, Interstate 10 goes east-west, you know, California and Texas and all that stuff. So basically once they hit that hub, um, they all disperse and everything. And uh, we've seen some wild stuff. Um, at one point I was a, a cop for uh, one year of my career, and um, we were at Pima Community College on the west side of town, and we were looking around. We got some reports of some people like hiding in the bushes. So we went to investigate. There's nobody there, but we legitimately found like foxholes, like dug where you lay down in the prone with sector stakes and mm-hmm. locking sectors of fire pointing at the school. And then behind it were all the um, like straight up like canvas burlap sacks, Hecho in Mexico with like hidden modify the shoulder straps, all the cellophane wrap where they had like dumped everything mm-hmm. and then moved it on out. So you're like, I mean, it's there. So that's why we're like pretty, pretty yeah. on edge about it. And then all the illegal, all the illegal folks that are coming through all our hunting areas are actually changing the deer patterns too. Cause they're not going in the same areas. Um, this past August, I was out looking in a really good area and I came up to glass and start glassing. And all of a sudden a uh, border patrol helicopter starts doing like an hour's worth of low level flying and like trying to herd a group of illegals while there were three border patrol agents on foot running through the desert, trying to capture up with them. And they, wow. the, the helicopters just blowing out the whole area. So it's changed our hunting too. Yeah, it's crazy. That's wild. They did a little tack, uh, a um, course with BORTAC, um, their Border Patrol uh, Special Operations Unit in uh, Southern California. Gosh, it's been years ago now, decade plus, I guess. Um, But uh, they took us out there and showed us just those same type of things, those little uh, sleeping areas and uh, the the socks that are on their feet that then get discarded and and that sort of a thing. And it was, it was really interesting to see all that and see, see how they, where they move, where they uh, remain over day and then move at night or whatever they're, whatever they're doing. Um, Then to get up and meet with the, with vehicles and then zip off to wherever they're going, uh, which could be up to Chicago, Washington state, wherever they're going to go from, from there. But it's an, it's a, it's a serious operation. Yeah, it's crazy. We we actually with those little socks, they they call them sneaky feet. We actually pick them up and you can use them because we make our own down there for sneaking in on the deer. So we <laughs> you, you see them on the ground; they're good. We we grab them. And no way. Use them, yeah, because you just get some carpet and straps. And yeah. Once you get in close enough to a deer, you put them on your feet and you walk through. Because there's tons of cactus, and some guys will just go with their socks. Oh. And then you get cactus and needles all over your butt. So yeah, it's kind of funny. We pick those up whenever we see them. Oh man, 
That is wild. And uh, but there was a guy that got killed with a, by a bear recently down uh, in Arizona. Yes, which is super uncommon, um, and it hasn't happened uh, from what I understand within the past thirty years in the area. Um, but he was up in Prescott, Arizona. And from what I understand, he was, he bought a piece of property. He was looking to build a house and he, I don't know if he was in the stages of building the house or if he had an RV and was just hanging out, but a black bear came and attacked him. I think he killed him at that point or killed him shortly after and drug him into the woods and started eating him. And then the neighbors came from, from what I understand and then killed the bear. And then when the, the officials came to investigate, they took the bear and, you know, did the autopsy. There's no rabies. There's no nothing like there's no, none of the, the typical symptoms or indicators that this bear is a man killer. Mm. So what they think is that maybe the bear had a den somewhere close by. And since the dude just bought the property, maybe the bear was trying to protect its den, mm. but I don't understand why it was eating it could, because at that point there's a tons of food sources already mm. because Arizona spring is early. It's mild. The grass is already coming up. There's already food for the bear. So it's just, it was super odd yeah. that that happened. Everybody's talking about that one. Man, you see it like on the, all the trails around here. It has mountain lion, moose, elk, mule deer, black bear. And when we first got here a few years ago, I was like, you know what? Maybe someone saw a black bear in 1950 around here because I haven't I haven't seen any yet. I'm out. I was outdoors at the time quite a bit with the kids and hiking and all that stuff. And I was just kind of like, ah, yeah, maybe a long time ago. Didn't see anything first year, second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year. Um, and then this year, there have been multiple black bear sightings around here. And one right by our old house, which is closer to, to town, um, and right by one of the front doors of our neighbors, and they sent us a picture. And good-looking, good-sized black bear. Yeah. Those bears can get big. and uh, They should be right around here, like this area right here. Yeah. Uh, but I haven't seen one up here. And there's definitely mountain lion up here. They've sure they've seen me, but I haven't seen one of them yet, but they're 100% up here. This is a great spot for them. If there's the food, they're going to be here. If there's all the moose and elk and deer calves coming down, they're going to oh, be yeah. here for sure. Oh yeah, man. That's wild. So have you seen a uh, uh, mountain lion? I've only seen two mountain lions in the wild. Down um, by you or somewhere else? Down by me. Um, one was a few years back. We were on a hill uh, glassing up for some coos white till. We had one we were looking at, and then on a hill kind of lower below us, about 300 yards away, we saw one walking the hill away from us uh, to our right, and it was just covered in blood on the side of its body. Wow. And we, we couldn't tell whether it was a bullet wound or scratches or something. We were thinking maybe a mountain lion tried to get at it, and then um, it got away. And so we watched it, and it went away. It wasn't, it wasn't one that we were after. Um, and so the next day we came back to the same hill to look for the deer that we were going after because it was a nice deer. And then we saw a mountain lion trail in that same spot. And I, I was there and I had my gun next to me. And I went and I, the mountain lion is falling just on a, on that path going pretty quick, a quick walk. And I grabbed my gun to go get it. And I looked away and it was already out of sight. Already like gone. Just a split second. I mean, Man. I probably saw him for five seconds. Yeah. And then about a month ago, I was up doing some preseason scouting and I saw a mountain lion in the grass, you know, like half a mile away on the top of a hill for two seconds. Just yeah. saw that tail and that body and then that's it was it. gone. And that's all, that's all I've ever seen. Yeah, man, it's a wild, that's such a cool, uh, such a cool animal. Um, but yeah, so it was, uh, was it, uh, so James Nash, six ranch outfitters, is that it? I think so. Um, it's James Nash, former, former Marine. And he posted a video on his, on his Instagram. And he said, I almost didn't take the 10 mil today. And he was out there. I think he was in Washington state, but I'm not positive. But anyway, he's somewhere in the Western United States and, uh, and took that, that, uh, that 10 mil kind of last second 
And sure enough, he's out there and black bear was, was on a kill and just got a little too close. And he I think he says he smelled it first. I, I think I'm not positive about that. Uh, but I think right when he smelled that kill, uh, he turned and black bear was charging him. He was just so close and wind was in his, uh, you know, was in his, in his face. So bear spray would have come right back and, and got him, but he took that 10 mil and, and, uh, put that bear down and said he felt very fortunate yeah. that day. Two rounds. I think he said. He, I, I mean, I've never been charged by a bear like that. I can't imagine like the, the adrenaline rush and like, yeah, it's you or them. I mean, luckily yeah. he was carrying that day. Cause that could have been bad. Yeah. Seriously, man. Um, yeah, I went up to, I was in Alaska a few years ago in the Admiralty islands and, um, oh my gosh, it was, it was beautiful. So beautiful. Um, and we're hiking up these stream beds and you're seeing 20, 30, 40, uh, a day. Uh, brown bear and you're with somebody uh, mutts is her name she's a second female um, alaska master guide her mom was the first so she grew up doing that and she's like the bear whisperer so i was always like looking at her and uh you know if she got nervous and i that's when i would get nervous because you know growing up you'd always hear you know don't get get uh close to mom and the cubs and all that stuff and we're hiking up these rivers moms and cubs everywhere so i'm just like you know, but it was beautiful. And sometimes you're kayaking up them. You take the kayaks from a from this uh, from a boat and go in, and, and you're kayaking up these up these rivers um, to get up to a point where then you uh, you pull them up on shore and then, then hike in a little ways further. And it's really really cool. But you're seeing so many bears every single day. Um, it's 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 wild, man. It's wild. But we didn't get we didn't get uh, get charged um, almost by one who was uh, young. So he came, he comes in and, and we're looking at it and she's like, Hey, he's legal. And that's not what you want to hear really from your, you know, you want to hear like, Oh my God, this is the biggest bear I've ever seen. You know, that's what you want. You want that, <laughs> that old one who's past yeah. the, past the prime. And really all he's doing now is, uh, you know, killing young ones and, and that sort of a thing. Um, but, uh, but he, he either smelled us or, or saw us or something and he got curious. And so he starts coming in close. So I'm, I'm off safe. I'm finger on trigger. I'm like just listening to her. She's right behind me. We're kind of elevated a little bit, and it keeps. And I have it on video, so I'm watching it come in because I know I because I'm like, ah, you know, I want I don't want one that's legal. I want something that's old, um, and whose time is you know it's time. And uh, but he got curious, and so he's coming. He's coming, and I'm filming, and I'm like, oh. I'm going to be the idiot that is filming when this thing starts eating me and I'm going to drop it and it's going to be there. And so, so I thought I turned it off, but I dropped it in my lap. So it goes from this bear getting moving in to still being able to hear. And so it's coming in, it's coming in, it's coming in. She's yelling at it to get out of there. You know, Hey bear, you know, my bear. And, uh, and it, and it gets pretty close to, enough, enough to make me nervous, but I, you know, this isn't what I do every day. It's what she does every day. And, and it, it makes, makes a move like that. Like, like it was, it all happened so fast and she's like, shoot, no, like she said, shoot, no, like that fast because he went forward, but she could tell that the body was moving this way. So it was forward and then it went off like that, but it was pretty dang close. Like that wall right there. Like that's how close it was, was that wall. You got some good trigger control then. It was good. good yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. I was, I was ready. I was ready. <laughs> but I mean, it was so, it was so close. I mean, it, 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 anyway, that's just how that's that a hard thing down. to do to be in that position and not pull the trigger, especially when you're that close. Yeah. You have that, you're like, it's impending. Yeah. First it was like, ah, you know, too young, you know, I mean, it was legal, but I want, you know, and, uh, and then it was like, oh, now it's getting serious. Uh, so I was, I was ready, but you know, I'm glad That's it awesome. didn't, uh, I'm glad it went down the way it, the way it did. Yeah, it wasn't, yeah. wasn't, I don't think it was that one's time. 
you know, so that was, that was cool. But that one over there, that skull the monster is a monster bear. Yeah. That was a, that was a pretty serious one. That was uh that was legit. Uh, but it was my friends who he wounded it in Kamchatka, Russia. So I'm out there doing research for Savage Sun. So my third novel and a large portion of it takes place in, uh, in Siberia and there's a hunting aspect to it. And I just knew how important it was going to be to go there and put boots on the ground and just kind of, you know, see that, uh, uh, talk to the people and see what they eat. And then just, just, just really kind of immerse myself in it. So, so went over and, uh, and yeah, so he wounded that one. And I don't think they do this in the United States, but they took us in after it into some really, really thick stuff. Um, and the rifle that I had was a, was a shot, wasn't a rifle, it was a shotgun and I had slugs and it was one from the guide. He handed it to me and, uh, it was all rusty, you know, and it, uh, and I can't remember if I realized it then or after, I don't know if there's conflation going on in my mind, but I think I realized that it was made cause I'd done so much research, uh, in, or maybe it was maybe in camp. I realized it, that would make more sense. Regardless, I think something told me like this was made in the AK factory, like back in the day. So I was like, okay, this is going to be, you know, like an AK, it's going to work. Um, cause I didn't know there's no test fire. There was nothing. And then he hands me, remember in, uh, remember in road warrior at the end when he has like that sawed off shotgun <laughs> and he had, and he's, and he shoots it. It's like, and like one works and then the other one. So he hands me these and it was in the bottom of the boat. So there's like water in the bottom of the boat and, and all that stuff. And he hands me a couple, you know, two, two rounds and, and there's, they're slugs. And, uh, so I put them in and I saw I had some more. So I was like, there was a, there was a language barrier, but I was like, Hey, you know, <laughs> give me a couple more there. And I'd done so much training on the double rifle for Africa a little while before that. So I felt like good with the operation and reloads and, and that sort of a thing. So I felt, felt good about it. But yeah, then we went in just online, just like back in, back in the day, except instead of a platoon or an element of some sort it was the three of us, my buddy <laughs> left flank, guide in the middle and me right flank and we're going and uh right where kind of that wall is right there as we're moving through this super thick stuff in russia this bear just just rears up boom like that so i just turned and put two in the chest like uh like i would a human you know upper chest and uh they dropped and and just and, and ran ran off uh and i did my reload which was if i must i'm it was pretty slick. Uh, the reload was pretty <laughs> slick. Uh, so got two more in there. Boom. You know, just kind of kind of scanning. You know, just like you would for a you know a person. Got to move position a little bit and do all that. And uh, and then we start moving in that direction once again online. And then we see some some branches moving in this super thick clump of stuff. And uh, and then hear it hear this breathing. And I'm like, okay. So the guide kind of points and tells my buddy to go around this little pond on one side uh, and tells him to take a position over there. And then me, he tells us to go to the other side of it and he's going to scare it towards me. And I was like, okay. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, wait. And then, so I got to the other side. I'm like, oh, this is a very bad idea. Um, so I'm like thinking in my head, cause I don't really have much experience with bears uh, that, okay, if it charges me, it's probably going to be on all floors. So I just, just knelt down, you know, I don't really thinking that maybe, you know, it'd go straight in either the head or go right under maybe into his chest or whatever. I got two rounds. And uh, two more of these things that I hope are going to work. In my mind, I'm thinking about Mel Gibson in uh, Road Warrior. And uh, so I'm waiting there, waiting, waiting. And then I heard the death bellow. So I waited a little while and then went in. And it was, it was that thing. It was enormous. Nor yeah, that's an understatement. Yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. But, uh, but a lot from that trip made it into the, the pages of, of Savage Sun, which is uh, probably the most hunt – there's hunting in all the books, but 
Yeah. But that's probably the most hunting centric and most archery uh, centric uh, of the novels. That's one of my favorite ones. Oh man, thank you. What's, what's that? Uh, there's that movie. It's in Africa. I think it has Val Kilmer with the lot you. Yeah. The uh, is that the um, something, something in the darkness? The uh, yeah. I'm losing. I'm forgetting right now, but yeah. That, yeah. That's what I'm picturing right now. Where he goes in and he had, he takes the other guy's rifle and he misfires and he's like. Oh, man. take an untested rifle into battle. Seriously. I, that's what I'm on. thinking. I'm yeah. violating like yeah. all my rules. <laughs> but, but, uh-huh. In the heat of the moment, what else are you going to do? You got a wounded bear in the brush. Yep. And I'm not going to say like, I'll wait here, guys. Like, that's yeah. just not in you me. Guys, I'll, I'll yeah. Back I'll guard the boat. <laughs> like, it's just, that's uh, like, I'll be here back with, I'll be with the women in the beer. Like, that's just not in my, my no DNA. Uh, so yeah, it wasn't even really a question, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, I couldn't stop thinking of the, uh, the, the road warrior oh, man. thing. <laughs> I've only ever had one encounter with a grizzly, uh, not a, not even a brown bear, but a grizzly who was in Idaho one year before I was in the Selway, and we, we had a group of buddies that were going after some elk, and they, they kind of spooked, so we left three of us online, and the rest of them kind of called their way out of the area to see if they would come back, and it was me on the left end, and then, you know, 10 yards away, another dude in the middle, and then again, another guy, and uh, I'm looking, I'm looking ahead, and all of a sudden, I hear like a pss, pss, and I look over my guy, and between me and him is a big grizzly bear that just came Dang. from behind us and just stopped online between like 10 yards no between way. us. and i'm like i'm like reaching for my bear spray and i'm like no i need to get my gun and then it kind of just looks left looks right and kind of says yeah. yeah like he get he gave us that look like you're not going to touch me and then just kind of sauntered off in the woods in the direction of the elk and then we're no like, way we're out of here, man. That was good. That's so, uh, wild. Yeah, That's close. Every and then you can smell them. You can smell that musk on them. That yeah. is really close. Yeah, that was that was the only time I've ever had a close encounter. Dang. You know, what surprised me about Russia was that that I didn't. I expected it to be more more wild west, and I think it was back in the day when they opened it up in the let's say early to mid nineties. Mm-hmm. Let's say for the first guys who not the first guys, but people who came in kind of after the right at the end of the Cold War. Um, and so I, so I, I bet it was more wild west back then. But in this case, I was surprised at just how much it was like the United States as far as, Hey, there were certain tags, certain quotas, uh, wildlife management. Mm-hmm. It was all, all controlled and just like the, the United States. Um, and I didn't really expect that. I thought it would be like more like, Hey, you know, let me add a few more or whatever. Like I thought that might yeah. be the case, but no, it was like, it was not. And I, went, I wanted to test that out. I wanted to like, find out like what was, what was going on over there. And it was, it was, legit you had a, a certain amount of tag they do the wildlife management they know how many of those bears have to come out of there in order to keep things moving because it's it's you know it's part of the economy yeah and 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 all the rest but and we were in the way and we were far like the helicopter ride into where we were was long and you're you know like mi old mi type you know thing and it's it was crazy going in those old russian helos um or soviet helos i should say i brought from from back in the day and you're just going then you stop and you do a refuel at a place that just has like a hut and some some of the of fuel and then bam off you go yeah. again so you're like hopscotching and you're going you're going deep but um but what really all but so point of this is that very controlled, very um, uh, official, just like here in the United States as far as wildlife management. But when the bear came back, that I think is the skull. I'm pretty sure I'll show you the pictures because it was huge. It was, it was absolutely enormous. But the one that came back that's at my buddy's place here in Park City, my friend that was, that was with me, uh, that's not the same bear. Mm. I think the actual bear might be in some oligarch's Dachau on the um, Black Sea. I'm He's guessing like, I want that. Exactly. I think 
something like that happened. But I mean, it was tagged and it was like, you know, it was the whole, the whole thing. Like it was very official. Now that was how everything was, was done. Once you got them in the, in the salt, once you got back, back to the camp. But uh, yeah. So, so that part did surprise me with all that official kind of management and, and all that to have the wrong bear end up at my buddy's place. Um, Cause when you do international wildlife stuff, like that's pretty, that's regulated. Mm-hmm. So to get the wrong one, I mean, I think a little sleight of hand may have happened with some Russian oligarchs, I think. <laughs> kind of like when back in the day you heard guys going to Iran and then you hear somebody getting like a sheep bigger than, you know, the prince or whatever. And no, it nobody, no, exactly. Yeah, it's not <laughs> happening. So, so uh, I think maybe something along, along those lines happened, but you know, um, how's, uh, so what's on the books for, um, for this fall? I, I got a couple things in the works. I had, uh, an antelope hunt in New Mexico in August, but, um, I'm going to be spending a lot more time at the shop. I'm okay. actually, so right as it stands right now, I've been doing a lot of the work at home, doing the books and the accounting and. Oh, you're doing all that. I do it all myself. Cause I wanted to learn. I wanted to, wow. I wanted, cause I have no business experience before this, Yeah. but I feel like, you know, the stuff that we did in the military, you, you get good at planning and managing programs and stuff like okay. that. So I wanted to learn myself. So I just started learning how to do all the books, the accounting, wow. paying the bills, a lot of the ordering, working with our, our uh, vendors and all that stuff. Um, but recently my, uh, my manager, he had an awesome job opportunity at a manufacturer, which is oh, a good cool. move for him. And I'm super happy yeah. for him. So I'm going to step in starting in August 1st. I'm going to be running the shop full time going forward. Are you looking for people then? I will be. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to start posting up a job posting where we're pretty pretty high volume archery shop down in Tucson, and uh, I'm I'm lo- going to be looking for the right person to fit that bill. Has a lot of retail and archery experience because the guy that left or is going to leave, he's got 23 years of oh, experience wow. working with the manufacturer. He's got a lot, so it'll be big shoes to fill. Yeah, um, but I'm excited for the future. We got a lot of growth coming up in the next couple of years. But um, so I canceled my antelope hunt in August just because I didn't want to step away right away mm-hmm. after that. And so. Um, September, I'm going to be taking out a buddy of mine in Arizona to uh, like north, like near Flagstaff for a yeah. bull elk archery hunt. Nice. So that'll be cool. I'm hoping to get him one. And then after that, we do all the the over the counter archery stuff in Arizona. And it's probably a curse right now, but I am obsessed with shooting coos, white tailed deer with my bow. And they live in the hardest areas. I'm walking on two prosthetic feet and it's a bow. So it's like, it's difficult, man. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you can make it much more difficult. No, I don't know why. Uh, yeah. I don't know why, but, um, man, yeah. that is wild. Well, talk to me about stick sniper archery. Um, because, uh, I love, because we talked about it in the back of that truck in uh, <laughs> yeah, total yeah. archery challenge, rainy day, yeah. you know, overcast day. And, uh, that was awesome. Snow basin. And we're in the back of that truck and, um, I'm asking you what you want to, what you, what, what your plans are and, and all that sort of thing. And you mentioned, you know, archery and you mentioned how much you love it and how much you love bow hunting and, and all the rest of it. So how did the, how did it come up, come about that you ended up with stick sniper archery? It's kind of a, it's kind of a cool story. Um, how things come together and how things are almost kind of meant to be in life. Um, because when I, I mean, going back to the moment in which I got injured in 2015, I got blown up on my 31st birthday in Afghanistan. And from that moment, it's almost like everything has been your 35th. Yeah. 31st birthday. 31st birthday. Yeah, I did was, not realize that it was your 31st birthday. It was great. Yeah. We did a, um, it was a two period of darkness mission and we infilled at night. And then I got hit early in the early hours of the morning on my birthday. Didn't even know it. And then, uh, yeah. So now, 
my birthday is also my live day. So it's got dual oh. meaning. So it's like really cool. Like I cheated death. I came into the world on one day and then I cheated death, you know, 30 wow. years later. No So it was way. super cool. Um, Dang. But from the moment I got injured, everything has been um, like really good. Like it, aside from the hard work, but I've been really blessed. And a lot of things have almost been laid like dominoes, like in a certain path to lead me to just here to yeah. whatever's next. And so I hunted a little bit. I'd never hunted until 2019 when a good friend of mine, he took me on a hunt in New Mexico for barber sheep Okay, with a rifle, got a barber sheep. And it was like, why have I never done this in my life? Okay. Like it's, it kind of fills a portion of the void after you leave military service because you you have to plan, you have to train, you have to do it, and there's no you know, there's no instant gratification. You either do it or you don't, and then mm. you're left with the feeling of if you don't do it, I want to do it again, or if you do it, you're like, yes, I'm going to do it again. Wow. And so after that, I did a couple hunts with the rifle, and then I thought to myself, man, I want to try a bow. And so my father-in-law had this old PSE Nova from like the 80s, and uh, he gave it to me. He's like, here you go. And I was like, this is awesome. So what do I do? I'm a good, I'm a good tactician. What is the first thing I do? I dry fire that sucker. Oh no. Yeah. I was going to ask you, did yeah. you take it to somebody first? Cause it might need a little bit of a Heck tune no. up. No way. You just dry fire I, it. I didn't know what I was doing. Oh I just man. Dry broke. broke oh man. So I had to, so I took it into one of the local shops at, um, owned by a combat Vietnam. For anybody listening, that means don't dry fire Please, please don't because at our at our shop we get it all the time and, oh, it, do you? and some people know or don't know to do it and they'll dry fire it on accident like i did but like in the store or they'll bring one that both. they dry fire yeah. we had oh, we had we had um what happened it happens and yeah. uh oh, and sometimes people don't get into their shop process properly so like say you train this is how i shoot this is how i stand i load my arrow and my what's going on in my mind and so some people don't have the proper shot process. And so say if you're getting going through your shot process and somebody talks to you, you get, your mind gets interrupted and then you don't remember to put the arrow in the bow, but then you pick up where you left off and you just draw back. Dang. And I saw it happen twice on the mountain this past weekend. No way. But they, we were like, don't shoot. We're like, you have to be real calm. Cause if you yell right, at somebody, right. don't, they were like, Oh, and they think, yeah. So two, two times people drew back without an arrow and we were able to kind of talk them down and get them to draw. Oh, Happens all the time, no unfortunately. Um, but you can get it fixed. Usually what happens is either your string breaks, your cams bend or break, and your limbs get cracked. So <laughs> That sounds like yeah, a major malfunction. Catastrophic. All that kinetic energy that builds up in the oh. bow when you draw back, uh, it doesn't go out with the arrow, so it stays in the bow. So yeah. that happened to this bow, and the string got all messed up, cams got all messed up, and so I was like, crap, I didn't know. I didn't know. And so... I was like, I'm a man. I'm going to draw this bow back and just see what happens. But so I took it into that shop to get it fixed and they fixed it up. And, and then I, and then so I this, this shop in Tucson, mm -hmm. Robinson's archery and they, uh, they fixed it. And then, and I started shooting and I was like, this is amazing. I'm shooting. And that bow, that bow, this old PSC Nova, I'm shooting in my backyard. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm Does doing it even it. have a release? Like what is, is there even a, that one had fingers. So I'm shooting yeah. fingers with a bow that probably should have had a release. And so I don't know what I'm doing. I'm jumping online. I'm watching all the John Dudley videos I can, uh, yeah. all the knock-on stuff, because he, you know, he runs people through teaching them everything there is to know about archery. Oh yeah, he was up here yesterday. It's been a lifesaver. I know. Yeah. I can't wait to listen to that one. <laughs> and I'm watch. I'm watching all those videos, and then I get a call from the same shop, Robinson's Archery, the old man, um, and he says, "Hey, there's a lady here who wants to donate a bow. Her father's in hospice, and they want to donate it to a wounded warrior. And you're you literally just came into the shop, so we want to give it to you." So I was like, "No way." So I go back to the shop and they had an old Browning bow with a tackle box full of gear 
and it was a better bow than what I was shooting. So I started shooting that bow. What year is it from? I think it was like a early 2000s. Okay. Yeah, but it had two cams and it was it was a good bow. So then I'm like, All right, I'm ready to rock and roll. Went out on a summer uh, archery hunt on Coos Whitetail Deer. I came across one across the wash about 80 yards away. The wind's howling left to right. And I had him staring at me at 80 yards. And I, I went to go draw back and I was like, I'm going to miss this thing or I'm going to injure it and it's going to be really bad. And I was like, I can't take this shot because I didn't feel good enough with mm-hmm. the bow and with myself. So I watched this giant whitetail run away and I was like, I need to get better. So then I went and bought myself a Matthews on Facebook and I shot and shot and shot. And I was like, this is amazing. And like, I started getting into it. So then I convinced my wife to let me buy a little bit of archery equipment. So like a bench, a oh, wow. press, a You start going deep. Went deep. I, that's what I do. And so then I, I, Googled how to build bow strings because I need a new string. So I built myself a string jig. Wow. Bought all the equipment and I started building strings for myself oh my and gosh. friends. And I was like, man, this is awesome. Maybe I could do it for friends and family. So I got like basically a full shop's worth of equipment in my garage. And um, I'm thinking to myself, man, I could do a little bit of low key business out of here. But our HOA stuff says no businesses in the neighborhood, which is pretty standard um, because we have a gate. And so I, um, I went, I reached out to neighbors and I said, Hey, I know I realize this is the case, but what if I, um, what if I pay for any damages? I can maintain the gate, maintain the road, all this stuff. And they weren't super happy about that. Um, coming back, we talked about it. So I was like, all right, cool. I'm not gonna, I'm not going to do this. I don't want to ruin the neighborhood. So at the same time, I have a, a, like a little, a, like a garage gym at my house and I'm training people in the gym because I love it. And I've been blessed to learn a lot of stuff. So I want to give back. So I got wounded warriors, disabled civilians, friends and family coming into the gym. And it was a decent amount. It was like seven sessions a week. We got 20 some people coming in and, but no business, no LLC, no payment. I was just like, we're having fun and we're doing stuff and everybody's getting, getting better together. And so my neighbors thought I had a business. Um, Uh. and so after I asked about the archery thing, they came back the next day with like a five page lawyer letter and says, we're going to take you to court and sue you if you, cause now you want another business, you're making money. So it got real messy after that for a while. And then, so, so I'm just super down. I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do with all this archery equipment? What am I going to do? And, and that's right when that was the January, right before we met at total archery challenge. So then I had my buddy, Jonathan Lopez comes up to me and he's like, Hey, COVID is happening. Operation Enduring Warrior, which is the nonprofit that he worked for that helps out veterans and first responders, they are having trouble because their big thing is Spartan races and Spartans got shut down. Mm. So he's like, we're looking to start an archery. So he's like, let's do it. So I was like, okay, that'd be really cool. So we started up the archery program right as I met you and Evan Hafer and all those guys at Black Rifle at their very first veteran adaptive shoot. And so I met you and we're talking and I'm thinking about the archery shop and we're all fired up. Um, talking about it, I met a lot of good people and networked and I went home and we started building up the OEW archery program. And I know this is a long story. It just kind of leads yeah. together, but we, we, we had this awesome program and we did uh, grants for equipment. We did training camps across the country, 3d shoots, hunts, got a dude, a job at a, an archery pro shop, got people to the Paralympics. Wow. It was awesome. And so what I told OEW is I got a year with them. So after the year passed, I said, hey, uh, I'll help mentor you guys. And so I'm going to focus on myself with this business. So I'm looking at starting my own shop. And archery business is cutthroat because it's like a car dealership. You can't, your bows need to be within your region. You got to get approval to sell Matthews, Hoyt, Bowtech, PSL stuff. That's what Dudley was saying. I was asking him about how it it works. Yeah, it's crazy. So you're supposed to like 
technically you got to uh, technically I'm uh, in Tucson, Arizona. That's my region. Maybe Southern Arizona. That's my region because with the big box stores, Amazon and you know Cabela's and Walmart, if they get a hold of all these bows, then it'll kill the archery pro shop. So what they do is they give us the ability to purchase specific bows that nobody else can have so that we can maintain them and sell them to people because like it's not just like you buy a gun and you install your own scope yourself there's so much that goes into a bow you could get hurt oh yeah that's why i have you do all of these it's it's a lot (laughs) it's a lot so we have all kinds of equipment and a lot of good training so um i was going to start from the ground i was like i'm going to get whatever brand i can i'm going to scratch my own from the ground and then i come to find out that the biggest shop in tucson the owner, he's looking to retire and he's looking to sell. And I just out of a, just, I was like, cool, I'm going to try to contact him. And I got his phone number and called him and he was like, yep, I'd love to make a deal. And he was super fair. He was a kind guy. We made a great deal. Nice. I was able to get that shop and then they oh, had 11 right. years of history. So it'd been up there 11 years. Yeah. Okay. Doing great. Doing really, really, had great people. They got a good reputation. And so we're able to build on that. And so the, w- archery is kind of like some of the shops are in the, the like little old school, like as far as technology websites mm. and marketing and yeah. online sales. So like, that's what we're capitalizing on right now. But, um, and did they already had, so they already had it set up for like this region. They're allowed to sell X, Y, and Z type of bows. Yeah. And so it's you, you step into that. Yep. We're just, we're just, we're maximizing what we got. So they had, uh, we're able to sell Hoyt, PSE, Bowtech, Matthews, Prime, oh, wow. and Raven crossbows. That's almost everything. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a, literally a not everything but that's like that's 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 a good chunk yeah it's it's it covers the base for what we need down there and um i mean we're always looking for more like other like i'm always looking for like the small niche products Uh stuff like that to bring other people in especially veteran-owned products Mm -hmm. like all the the slings on these bows yeah they're magnetic and they're made by jacked gear which is a veteran-owned company and he comes to every total archery challenge nice and uh, we love supporting those guys oh very cool really well very cool. Yeah, right there, 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 and then on my my son's, which is inside somewhere. Um, oh, man, that is wild. Yeah, because I was curious how that works out with because sometimes you walk into a, a store and oh, there's no Bowtech here, but there's but there's Hoyt, or you walk into one and there's um, uh, there's Hoyt, but there's no Matthews or or whatever. Uh, however, that that's worked out. Um, so that's really, yeah, that's that is wild that that timing happened to to work out with that. Yeah, you wanted something and it happens to be for sale. It just the timing couldn't have been any better. Um, I couldn't I couldn't believe how it happened because, um, like I said, I I was ready to be just in the trenches and mm-hmm. working and just being the small shop and just working my way up. And then this happened, and that's why I say all the way everything happened from the moment that the old man at Robinsons was like, "Hey, we have a bow for you that wants to be donated yeah. to a wounded warrior." All the way until now, it's like I'm working my butt off, but it's not. It, it wasn't like I'm having to hustle on the streets like really, really hard. It's almost like it's just natural. This is the way it should happen. And so I'm really excited for the future. Like I want to grow the shop. We want to um, get a bigger facility. We want to do a lot more outreach with veterans and kids and grow archery. Mm -hmm. Because for me, the archery has been super therapeutic. Um, And I know a lot of people have their different methods, you know, meditation and cold plunges and, you know, folks getting into ayahuasca and all that kind of stuff. For me, archery is all of that. And when I go out, and if I'm having a bad day, I will literally go out there and shoot five or six arrows. And when I'm at full draw, you can only think of the arrow. Right. Nothing in your mind. I cannot think of the pain, the wobbling in my legs, bad day, nothing. You think of that arrow. And then as soon as you release it, it's like a release of that stress. And you hear it hit. 
It's like mm-hmm. a positive feedback loop. And so it's been powerful in my life. And so I love giving back and showing people how awesome it is. Man, so awesome. So fired up for you. When I saw that, I think I saw it on Instagram first. And I remember exactly where I was. I was at a at Airbnb just across the just across town here, uh, working on uh, one of the novels. And I saw it pop up, stick sniper. I'm like, what? And I texted you immediately. And I'm like, dude, this is happening. Congratulations. Uh, I want, I want a bow, you know, just whatever you're building. I'm like, whatever you have there, I don't, doesn't matter. Just make me whatever you would make. And uh, that, that, that was just so, that fired me up so much to see that. And, uh, and then to text you as soon as I, as I saw it. But uh, so, so growing up, did you grow up in Arizona? I forget. Yep, I'm born and raised in Tucson. Okay, mm-hmm. so you're right there. Yeah, we're, we're, I mean, we live, um, I, me and my wife and kids live right where I met my wife a mile down the road. Mm. They're all going to the same schools, no families kidding. down there. And I mean, it's hot right now. It's about 112, but yeah. we love it down there. Yeah. We but it's a dry heat. Yeah, we hibernate here <laughs> in the summer, so. <laughs> Man, that is wild. So, you, so growing up there, and uh, and I forget, did you, you are a police officer first, and then? In the military? So I was, well, my, my time in the military was in the National Guard. And so um, I joined. It was that path. In 2005. So I graduated high school in 2003. My current wife, girlfriend at that time, went to the University of Arizona for mechanical engineering. And I was like, yep, that's what I want to do. Just because I wanted to follow her and impress her. And I got into there and, you know, the first the first semester is calculus and physics and chemistry and engineering. And I was like, I am not disciplined enough for this. So I ended up dropping out working at a restaurant for a couple years. And then I was like, I need to do something with my life. I need something better. And I was like, I was looking at the military and I was like, I'm going to join as 11 Bravo infantry in active duty military. And so I had a good buddy of mine who was counterintelligence in the reserves and he was working to get his degree at the same time and then going to go active duty. Mm. And he talked to me about that. And I was like, that's amazing. So I want to do that. So then I joined um, and I was going to be counterintelligence, but they, I got kind of shanghaied by the recruiter and I ended up joining as an analyst um, because they didn't have any slots supposedly for counterintelligence. And so as Those recruiters. As, man. Yeah, I didn't know. I mean, you don't know what you don't yeah. know. You feel so intimidated going through MEPS and you're like, you get prodded and poked and, and yeah. you're just like, all right, just get me out of here with whatever job you got. And but, but like I said, I think everything happens for a reason because when I got to basic training, a friend of mine had a book called Get Selected for Special Forces. And it's this book that was written back in 03, 02, something like that. And it's not it's not like a how-to. It's not like a cheat code. It's basically like if you want to go to selection for the Green Berets, here's how to prepare your body. Here's the mindset you need, stuff like that. And it's they want you to, to be independent and take that information and go with it. So yeah. I came from an intel background, and I was like, I was like, I, at that moment in basic training, I said, I've made a terrible mistake on what I chose for my path. I was like, I want to be an SF guy. That's what I'm going to do. So fast forward a couple. How years. are there books? How are you having books in, in basic? Like I thought, I don't, I don't know. It might've been in reception or something like right before. Okay. I just remember. Sitting so I thought there. they remember they take everything. Don't they like take everything yeah. and you're only like given yep. your toothbrush and you know what they issue you? It, well, there's, isn't there that portion in reception, like where you still have your civilian clothes right before they take everything from you and they so shave it was like in there. Yeah. yeah. So like that first day or night yeah. or whatever, whenever you, you get there, where, where is basic? That was Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Okay. And we're sit, I just remember sitting on a bunk with him and he was above me. His name's Ben Lovell, tall, skinny dude. He ended up going to the 20th special forces group out okay. of Alabama. And I think that's why he had that book. Cause he wanted to be a green Bray. Uh-huh. but he was uh, in Intel and we we're sitting on the bunk and he's had this. And I was like, let me see that. And I read through it a little bit and then he let me finish it later on before we it ended up like getting hammered, you know, getting on the uh, bus, shaving your head in uniform. Okay. And that's when I was like, I should have done this. 
And from, and that's the poem, the moment in which I was like, I'm going to go be a Green Beret. But then you set a goal and things, life happens and it gets in the way. And um, I came back from basic training and I started uh, working back at the restaurant again, not really knowing what I was going to do with my life because uh, you're doing drills and all that stuff. And so it was just basic and then don't, don't do you any follow on training? Yeah. So it, well, it was about, I got, I can't remember how long it was like four or five months total. Cause we went to AIT, like mm-hmm. your, your secondary Advanced school training. in Fort Huachuca. So yeah. I wasn't even that far from Tucson. It's about yeah. 45 minutes. And that was Intel school. And that was right. kind of fun. You know, you learn the Intel process yeah. and all that. And, um, and then after that, so then you, f- you finish AIT and you have to report to your unit, which was in Phoenix. It was the, at the Barden's reserve center. And you do, you do like a couple weeks there and then you go back and then you say, okay, we'll see you guys next month for drill. And I was just not jazzed up about it. I was like, yeah. I, I was like, I should have done something else. So that seems fairly relaxed the way you're describing it. Like there's no looming deployments. There's no, no. it's just interesting. So that was, so I got out, uh, finished the training in 2006, uh, somewhere around May, April or May, 2006. And then, so then I went back and started working at the restaurant again and figuring I didn't, at that point I was back at square one. Like, what yeah. am I going to do with my life? You know? Cause I wasn't going to college at that point. I had my clearance and everything, but, um, in, two, in 2007, I got married to my wife. And then right after that, uh, in August, we got mobilization orders to Iraq. So we got married in, in August of 2007. June of 08, we were in Iraq for okay. 13 months. What are you doing there? Uh, that was Intel. So we were in Baghdad at the Corps headquarters. Um, we were reporting to General Austin, 18th Airborne. We did a little bit with General uh, Petraeus. I didn't brief him, but I was in on some briefings. But it was I was a specialist surrounded by a lot of brass. And so it was kind of, it was interesting, but I worked oh. the Shia problem set. So uh, like I was in charge of the Shia or I was the, the night shift NCO for the Shia problem set. And it was right after the surge. So it was a lot of stuff going on. Um, you know, Jay Shamadi and all those guys down South in Iraq, but I stayed, I stayed in Baghdad the whole time. And I was like sitting there looking at all the dudes coming in from the missions, getting Intel from us. I'm like, man, this, I want to, I want to do this. Did you talk to him? Oh yeah, they had their beards and all the kit and everything, no patches and everything. And I was like, "This is awesome!" And I'm, you know, yeah. you know, I'm just the Intel guy. So not to say anything bad about it, but I just this burning deep desire to assume to do something better. And then that's when the goal resurfaced for like going SF. I was like, "I got to do this." So then I started training hard. I rocked around Baghdad so much, okay. pull ups, push ups, just training and reading, prepping my feet. Okay. And then we got back from Iraq in August of 2009. And then um, I put in a request to transfer over to the 19th Special Forces Group here in Utah at a Camp Williams. Okay. And they they accepted it, like, right away. So really? by, by November, I was out of the of the reserves and in the National Guard and, and the training group. It was called the REC, Readiness and Enhancement Company. It's where all this little, the young guys come in, and you got to pass all the, the gates. Um, you had to get, you get your physical, your SF physical taken care of. You had to pass a 12-mile ruck in three miles carrying 45 pounds dry up in the mountains in camp williams at like six seven feet south mm-hmm. six or seven thousand feet elevation you got to do your your pull-ups your push-ups your run swim and all that stuff and then i passed it uh, the gates and then 2010 i went to selection at fort bragg in june which was just awfully hot and <laughs> past selection july my first daughter was born and then the end of July, I went to airborne school at Fort Benning. And then November of that year, we, we PCS to Fort Bragg. And we were there for about two years. Oh, man. It was just back to back. Yeah, that, that's pretty solid. But going back to that Iraq deployment, what do you remember? Um, 
from your uh, your target set or just from Iraq in general? Were you just focused on what you were doing, doing the best job you could, or were you thinking more like, okay, what is like? Were you thinking any long term? Uh, what we've been doing up until that point, what the future is there? Uh, like, what are you? What are your thoughts as you're as you're doing? Does anything stand out from that deployment to you? Yeah, it was. It was, well, I mean, so I was bright eyed and bushy tailed yeah. in there. I didn't know anything right. except for like our pre Intel briefings. Um, but then you get put at a high level at the core level of what's going on. And I just, a lot of us were just wondering like, w- like, what are we doing? You know, the whole nation building <laughs> crap, like what, what's our, what's our end goal? Because this was 2008, you know, so it's been six years, no, five years by then. Um, it was just after the surge, so you're, we're still seeing all the same stuff. So since I was focusing focusing on the Shia problem set, the Shias are a subset um, of the Muslim faith. There's the Shias and the Sunnis. So in Iraq, the the Shias were the dominant. There's like way more Shias than there were Sunnis. There was a lot of ethnic cleansing going on in Baghdad right before we got there. A lot of violence, going door to door, seeing what sector you're at and killing whoever whoever they could. That was the opposite and what we started seeing a lot was the EFPs and EFPs are like a specific weapon that's used in specific areas. It's an explosively performed penetrator. And it's basically like a copper disc of varying sizes. Like you could have like a four inch one, two inch one, all the way up to like 10 or 12 inch diameter. And these copper discs are pressed very precisely and then made into like a cone and then put in like a cylinder with explosives behind them. And as soon as that explosives goes off, the, the, the brass or copper melts and it forms like this big slug and that sucker mm-hmm. would penetrate all of our armor and they were devastating and they were pretty precise. They could be set on like infrared sensors and be on like an array of like, you know, 10, 12, two inch discs. And they were so precise that they could hit like a gunner on a vehicle's head as they're driving by as real gnarly. So we did a lot of studying, a lot of studying about that and looking into it. And there is, there's a lot of like stuff that pointed to those things were being made in other countries. And so, mm-hmm. One of the one of the things that really frustrated us is that we had like solid intel packages that that stuff was coming from somewhere, but nothing was being done about it because the focus was on Iraq. And because they were Shias, there was also the reconciliation going on at the same time. So all the bad dudes that were Shia that got captured, like Asab al-Haq, Jaish al-Mahdi, Kitab, uh, Hezbollah, I think, KH, they were, um, they were like a lot of these dudes were captured in prison but we had to go through reconciliation and we were looking at releasing all of them so all those target packages and all their history came through my desk and we had to vet every single one of them and every single one of them we said absolutely do not release these guys they're gonna as soon as they get released they're gonna go back over to iran they're gonna start training training up their other guys and they're gonna come back and wreak havoc well because of the you know the strategic goals they released them all and they went back over to Iran, they trained, they got better, they came back and they did a bunch of stuff. Um, so it was, it was super frustrating that end of it. And I'm sure you've seen it cause I know you were there that time too. A little, a little before and then a little after, but, um, yeah, gosh. And so you're, so essentially you're in, you're in, uh, like the highest level tactical operations center jock or whatever they were calling it then. Um, and so you are pretty new mm-hmm. and then you have the most senior person in Iraq and that staff to deal with. So in those, in those briefings or what you heard from people, or what was your general impression of senior military leadership at the time? Were like you impressed with them or were you like, these guys are politicians or were you ambivalent or were like, what were your thoughts on those senior level leaders in Iraq? I think at that time, because I was so fresh and so new, I thought, I thought I looked up to a lot of folks and thought that like they're 
good at what they do. You know, you take them at their word and be like, yep, they're doing a great job and they're doing the best they can. I think looking back on it now that I've seen a lot more stuff all over the world, I think that once you get to that level, you can't avoid being political unless you're, you know, unless you're willing to sacrifice your job. I don't think there's any way to avoid it now that I look back on it. Um, but during that time, we thought they were great. You know, we listened to everything they said, even though we're looking at the end state and the output of what operations we're producing, you're not, it's not really jiving with what the end state is. And so, you know, you're just told as a lower enlisted just to put your head down and go to work. Mm -hmm. So, excuse me. Um, so, we just kind of did it, but yeah. then you see what's be, what's going on, and you're like, "This makes zero sense. Why are we going to release all these dudes?" That number one, you guarantee that there has been people that have sacrificed their life going after these really bad guys, and then you're going to release them. And I understand maybe what the end state was is peace within that country, but there's, in my opinion, there's got to be other ways to do it aside from releasing like the worst of the worst. So. We were pretty frustrated during that time seeing a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And I wanted to make a difference on the ground. So in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to train. I'm going to go SF, and I'm going to be on the ground at a tactical level. I'm going to make a better difference than what I'm doing now. Because yeah. as an E4, making recommendations to three- and four-star generals, it's not really like they don't really take you that seriously. So. Well, maybe they should have. Man. Yeah. yeah. yeah I've been, by that point, I'd been in for a little while. And, uh, you know, from right after, well, before September 11th, but during September 11th, right after Iraq, Afghanistan, all that. And you're seeing it and you're seeing, oh, this place is a little worse off than the last year that I was here. Um, what are these people doing at these? What are they learning from their past uh, successes and failures? And what are they doing going forward here? Anyway, it's uh, a lot of that stuff makes it into my books, which is why it's so therapeutic to write them when it comes to senior level military leadership. Take a breath before we move on, but uh, <laughs> man, so uh, so you yeah. come back, you want to go SF? Uh, that's a really cool program that you can do with yeah. uh, what 19th Special Forces Group here and uh, do that train up. So you get to Fort Bragg, and what is it like for so Q course? You're starting off like day one, you show up, walk in, somebody sitting at a desk, you say, hey, hey, I'm Caleb Brewer, I'm here to. How does it? How does, what does it go from there? We we do the in processing and you get your uh, we have to meet our liaisons and our we had like cadre that's in charge of our small groups and that that our, our small group would be seen all the way through the end of the course with the same cadre, albeit you'd probably add a couple guys lose a couple guys mm. here and there you know depending mm. on uh, you know medical issues or failing a course or something right. like that. But as uh, soon as you get there, we had to be sent out to Camp McCall, which is like a big training area for. Um, special ops do a lot of mission, uh, missions and training out there. And uh, so we did a leadership training. It was called CLT, I think. I can't remember what it's. That's how you start. You go straight out there. Like the second you get out there within a day or two, you go out to Camp McCall for three weeks. And um, you have to learn because I was an E5, a real junior E5 by then. And so that you have to go through a lot of the the manuals about, it's like an NCO school uh. training on that stuff. And uh, you you do a lot of um, combatives. You do a lot of shooting, a lot of land nav. Okay. Um, and unfortunately, during that time, the cadre out there were a little loose. So we they we got we got we did a lot of fighting, and it was maybe for their entertainment, but we did a lot of fighting. Really, in the rain and the snow and these pits, and uh, a lot of land nav. So it was like a suck fest. It Dang. Was, but it's like it's like any any course. You get there, you have to set the mindset and you have to get everybody on the same wavelength. So like they just, they started hammering us on the PT and smoking us because they want us to know this is what's going to come. Mm -hmm. So I can kind of see it from that aspect. Um, so that was three weeks. And then as soon as 
we finished that. We came back and we started uh, language school. So when you're in SF, everybody's got to learn a language. It's usually uh, per your area of specialty in the world. So our company and battalion was Southeast Asia. Um, and so I learned Indonesian and that was a four month uh, long course. There's either four, the short or the six, the long. Okay. So like Korean and Chinese were all the long ones. Yeah. So we did four months at Bragg. At Bragg, yep. It's a special operations language school. Are you on your own for staying in shape, or are you? Uh, they have a thing you do every morning and then go to language school. That depends on your cadre. We had mm -hmm. a cadre that was wanted to see some responsibility from us, so it was about fifty fifty. So we would do some group sessions, and then he would tell us like, "This is on you." And you know, once you get into the regiment, you need to be able to be responsible for yourself. Fire and forget. We don't want you your fitness to go down because you're just being lazy and irresponsible. Mm -hmm. So you need to have that responsibility to, to be able to pass the PT test, the ruck marches, the swims and the pull-ups and all that stuff. So we did PT five, six days a week. We were rucking a ton, um, you know, put 45, 55 pounds in your ruck and go on ruck runs because you have to do 12 miles in three hours, which seems pretty reasonable, but if you're going to Fort Bragg, there's all the tank trails and all the sand and mm -hmm. uphills and downhills, and that just beats you. And the 45 pounds is dry, so you got to carry a rubber duck, so a simulated weapon, same weight and everything. You got to put your water in there, and mm -hmm. so you're 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 around 65 pounds, and you got to make 12. So it means you're doing 15 minute miles for 12 miles straight. Um, so it means you're going to be running. You're going to run. Oh yeah. And so we did a ton of that running, and and at the same time we're going to school every day. We're eight hours a day in the classroom learning Indonesian. And, uh, and then I had my wife and my brand new baby out there. She just moved. She so they came out with for training. Yeah. For, like for un, under the years. assumption that you're going to make it through, not under the assumption that yes. we'll keep them somewhere else in the assumption that you won't make it through and you're going to be going back to wherever you mm -hmm. came from. Yeah. Interesting. And my wife's a saint because she had uh, an engineering job and she's a, she's an engineer. She graduated from the university of Arizona with it and she took a leave of absence from her job. Oh, wow. And uh, to raise our kid and to Amazing. come out there because we had a, you know, a less than a one-year-old kid. Did she like it around there in Fayetteville? Uh, not really. Fayetteville, Fayetteville itself is not my cup of tea. And we didn't know where we were going to live. And so we chose what we thought was a nice apartment complex that just so happened to be in a bad area of Fayetteville. Like when you're uh -huh. this place called the Merchinson, Merchinson Street, which is like, they call it the Merck. And the only reason I know that's because everybody would be like, you live where? Oh, wow. And I remember being on the playground and hearing like bullets flying overhead and stuff. So we're like, oh, all right, wow. we're going inside. No um, way. So yeah, Fayetteville itself is not that great. It's pretty, it's like any typical military base town where it's, it's pretty bad as far as the violence goes. But um, how was the, uh, that ruck, what did you said? 12 miles, 13 miles? 12, yeah, 12, 12 miles. miles yeah. Three hours. I think we, we, we must've instituted it because you guys did because the time I got to seal tactical training, they changed the name to seal qualification training. Um, and they instituted that because we used to have that say, that kind of graduate level after buds and every team had their own. And then when I got there, I was the second class to go through where all the teams went through the same thing on each coast. So the East coast would have theirs, West coast would have, have ours, all the teams together kind of for standard operating procedures. You're all going through the same thing now, rather than each team having, you know, what, what they did. And uh, so they started doing this ruck run as part of it. But my class was summer uh, in Nyland, California, which is down South, very hot, 120. They, so they did this ruck run in like 127 degrees or or six degrees. It was maybe not, maybe I'm exact, whatever, way over a hundred. It was hot and uh, they hadn't done it before. And so I think they used the same standards. They must've got it from, from SF. Uh, and off we went. And I think three of us made the time, whatever that time Man. was. And I remember being very, and then, 
And then they just were like, okay, we medically, and people are just falling. Like, like it was serious. I think the next day they, and we'll, once you cross that finish line, everybody IVs and whole next day, they just stopped training and everybody just kept getting IVs the next day. Cause it was, it was serious. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised we didn't actually have anybody really go down hard. We had people go down, but like you didn't have to airlift anybody out of there as far as I remember, but, um, we probably could, wouldn't weren't far from it because that was, that's a long way to go in 120 when you haven't done it before and you're trying to make a time and you have that pressure and oh, yeah. you're still in that buds mentality of they're going to have to kill me. And you're like yeah. thinking like you have, you, you pass everything, you exceed expectations. Um, and, uh, so that, yeah, I remember that, but I was very proud that I was one of those guys that made it across, that's but, hard, but that's it hurt. Hard to do. I remember it hurt. I remember the next day, like I, to this day, I can remember, um, what that felt like the next day. That green tick on your back is just, it's something. The green tick. It's the worst. The <laughs> green tick, big old green tick. Cause we, Alice pack, we carry those suckers everywhere. When, when I went to selection in June, it, at Fort Bragg, it's humid and hot mm-hmm. and everything. It's miserable, and that yeah. heat destroys you. We had guys go down; they get rhabdo real bad, uh-huh. real bad. They'd strip them down naked right there on the spot, cover them in ice sheets. Oh man! They'd have to have a rectal thermometer and then start oh. pumping them through IVs because they. I mean, your your internal cork temperature would get, you know, in the mid one hundreds, and you'd be on the not good. Dying. You're peeing out Coca Cola covered stuff. Oh, it's is bad. It's not good. It's just awful and. You carry that rucksack forever. Like when we did our, our land nav course in selection, it's the star course. And it's a, you have to hit five points in, I can't remember how many hours, um, but you're, you're talking 20 plus miles in the woods and they start you with a new moon. So there's zero moon illumination. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to move in the woods with any kind of light. So you got to walk in pitch black. You have to, and anytime you need to look at your map and compass, you have to take a knee, take a red lamp and look at that stuff, figure out where you're going and, and go. And you're in the swamps. So you can't, you can't cut through a draw. It, it will, it will give you double the time to go versus going way around and cover more ground. So you're walking 20 plus miles. And I remember I was going through a draw the first, first time. And I never did it again after that, because I remember coming across a guy and it, it was, it was flat and then it dropped down into a draw, which is like a little drainage area of like vines and swamp. And I came across a guy and I heard a guy crying and he was kind of hung in the air. His rucksack got cut up, caught on these vines, and he was like hanging in the air a couple inches up. What? He had his e tool, which is like a like a shovel that you you know put together, and he was like swinging it and trying to cut the vines. And as he's crying, like losing his mind, and I was like, "What is going? Where am I right now?" So I helped cut him down, and I was like, "All right," I backed right out of that sucker, and I went around and never went into a draw again after that, dude. Dang, it was crazy. I mean, that it break like if you're by yourself in the pitch black, having to walk through the pitch black for hours and hours, it really like, you have to be good mentally knowing, being comfortable in your abilities. Cause mm-hmm. it can break you, man. It, it, like the low, like being lonely yeah. in the dark can really break you. Yeah. And it was, it was crazy to see, but you, but you have a 45 pound plus rucksack. You got your food, your water, your rubber duck mm-hmm. all in there carrying that green tick on your back for hours and hours and hours. Man, It was crazy. Yeah. For whatever reason, I always liked, being on my own in the dark. And, uh, I remember as a little kid going out backpacking and, um, with my dad and a few of his buddies and that sort of thing and fishing and, and, uh, doing like compass courses, even at that, that age and like learning map and compass doing it in the dark. Um, and, uh, there there was, it was really cool to do that. I liked it. And for whatever reason, I was fortunate enough to, to get in the outdoors and have people put me through that stuff at a very young age. Looking back, I'm like, 
like I haven't done that with our mm. kids. <laughs> like I would worry that I would never be seen again. Oh, yeah. Like I was out there Same on here. my, anyway. Uh, but I, but I, I didn't like it at then. I remember I didn't like it then. Like very uncomfortable for an eight year old kid, seven year old kid, nine year old kid to be doing that. Oh, yeah. I remember. Yeah. Um, but then I did it again, like later, like eighth grade and then river region. I got to, I did something similar like high school and I liked it those other times because I was in part of like a group and they would do it and send you off. I remember in like five minute increments, 10 minutes, whatever it was. And, uh, but I'd done it before. I remember like, Oh, I did this when I was eight and you know, now I'm 12 and people are nervous and I'm loving it. You feel good. Yeah. That way. Yeah, yeah. Whatever that is. Yeah. I don't know what, yeah. what kind of energy that is or what it says about me, but, uh, <laughs> but I, but I did like it. So then when I got to buds and we did something, something similar in buds and third phase. And, uh, I liked that because, you don't have an instructor yelling at you. Like you're moving, you're getting to your points, you're getting to your next one and you're doing that, that course and you have a time limit and all that sort of a thing. But you don't have an instructor there. Like you do like on the beach and you're doing pushups and they're kicking sand in your face, telling you you're worthless, quit now. Like that sort of a thing. Um, so I liked that stuff that I could do on my own and the map and compass work was some of that. So I really did like being on my own in the dark, going from point to point. I, I did, I did like that for whatever whatever reason. But, uh, but that sounds wild. It wasn't in the swamp. Like ours was up in, uh, gosh, La Posta area. Anyway, um, outside of San Diego, but, uh, but still it's the same as what you went through. They just look for the, not a swamp though. It wasn't a swamp. They call this the armpit in North Carolina. They just look for like a nasty area. No, no moon. They want to, they want to see what you can do. Yeah. And I like, I like being alone like that, being, being uh, in that kind of environment. And I was, I was pretty new to it. I had grown up like we tons of outdoor stuff, hiking and camping and stuff, but I'd never done land nav like that before. So it, it was super tough. And, but I found out later that I really enjoyed it. And now mm. it translates into when I'm out hunting. Yeah. I love it. I, I don't mind staying till last light and walking, you know, a mile or two, whatever it is, back to my truck in the dark. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. And it's been really therapeutic for me. Yeah. I don't feel lost. I remember my first uh, elk hunt, public land, New Mexico. And then uh, going back to those, those skills, but not just the military skills, the stuff before that and the stuff from when I was a little kid and just feeling comfortable being out and uh, you have to take care of your elk if you get it at last light, like, uh, like I did, muzzleloader hunt and, uh, and then got to take care of it, get it off the ground, do all that stuff and then eventually make your way back to camp. But um, I have the paper map have my compass, uh, and then have multiple compasses, like one of my, one of my watch, one like that I used to wear for the, you know, the, did, I don't know if you wore one as a, as a communicator, uh, doing JTAC type stuff, but the, the, Garmin? the uh, uh, was it the, the, the Garmin one that was like on a little wrist Velcro four, strap four tracks or e tracks? No, just the actual, actual compass. Like I not a, oh, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. yeah, yep, yep. the, uh, whatever that, I forget who makes that now it's anyway, but, uh, maybe, maybe it is a Sunto anyway, but, uh, just having that and have, so I having the actual ones and then also having my little Fortrex also to back it, back it up the small one and then having the larger one. If I need to pull that, that out, that's like color and all that. But I like just, I like that map and compass and just having that compass, taking those bearings and bam, going to that next ridge and then taking the next bearing or going to the next tree even, and then taking the next bearing from there. Boom, boom, boom. You're, so I like you're talking that. about stuff that's like just second nature to you right now, but which is, which is awesome. But a lot of folks don't think about that, like having yeah. backups, like one is none and two is, or one is none and two is one yeah. having a backup for something. And that's like, when you're planning an operation, you got to have that pace plan. And I've, there's been so many times with my prosthetics or my gear, I got to have backups, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that really has been helpful for me. And that's why I like 
being outdoors and hunting because it's it fills that void. You got to plan that mission and you go do it and all the stuff that translates over from the military service. That's why I've seen so many veterans get into hunting and archery mm-hmm. and on you know shooting rifles because it helps. Yeah. If you don't sit there and just reminisce about the old days. It's like, no, man, I'm going to use what I learned and I'm going to yeah. be good at something else. Yeah, exactly. That foundation. And you're building on that foundation going forward, uh, doing something that's, uh, that's meaningful to you and, and helps you develop as a, as a person and hopefully pass on to the next generation, you know. Navy Federal Credit Union. I've been a member of Navy Federal Credit Union since 1996 and have only had incredible experiences. Getting a new car is exciting and you deserve a hassle-free buying experience. You can get a decision in seconds and enjoy great rates. With everything you need in one place, Navy Federal's Car Buying Center is your one-stop shop for researching, financing, buying, protecting, and enjoying your next car. You could search for new and used cars, access vehicle history reports, enjoy discounts on auto insurance, and more. And you can make the most of your time on the road wherever you go with our flagship credit card. Whether you're taking a trip to relax or see somewhere new, you deserve a travel card that does the work for you. The flagship credit card will earn you three times points on travel, plus up to $100 in statement credits towards TSA PreCheck or Global Entry and a free year of Amazon Prime. With two times the points and all purchases outside of travel, the rewards don't have to end when your vacation does. For more on Navy Federal's car buying experience and flagship rewards, visit NavyFederal.org. Open to the armed forces, the DOD, veterans, and their families. Credit and collateral subject to approval. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. Visa is a registered service. Mark of Visa. Used by Navy Federal under license. NavyFederalCreditUnion.org. So, uh, so Q course, you show up, you go to McCall, you do that, that leadership course, and then you're into Indonesian for four months. Did you ever use Indonesian after that? Twice. Okay. Not in Indonesia. <laughs> I, uh, Indonesian and Malaysian are like 90 or 80% similar. Mm. And people in the Philippines, some of them speak Malaysian. So when we were in the Philippines training their special action force, like they're kind of pseudo SWAT military. Some of them spoke Malay. Okay. So we were talk, able to talk a little bit. And then when I was in Thailand, I met an Indonesian Navy SEAL. And so we just kind of shot the shit for a quick couple minutes. And then that oh, was nice. it. That's okay. the only time I ever used it. Gotcha. Hey, you know, tax Better dollars, tax yet. dollars at work. Uh, so four months of that. And then bam, now you're back in. Uh, what's the next part of the Q course for you? So we go to small unit tactics, SUT. And then that's back to back with SEER school. Um, and so small unit tactics, I can't remember how many weeks it was at that point. It was like six or eight weeks. And then you learn all the the tactics of being in the woods and how to operate as a team. Um, A lot of Vietnam-style stuff, patrol bases, ambushes, um, raids, and stuff like that. And you're in the the woods for quite a while carrying a heavy pack, just dirty, have to learn to live without a shower for a couple weeks at a time. And then um, I remember finishing SUT in November, the end of November, and then going straight into SEER school, two weeks of SEER level C. And so the first- And that's SF specific SEER, right? Yeah, which is, unfor- I, mean, I don't, I don't want to say unfortunate, but there were some buddies that went through the course with us that were like Marine, um, and they had been through the Marines uh, SEER level C. Oh, they came just to the SEER portion? No, they, they had trans- transitioned to become a Green Beret. Oh, okay. We, we actually had a lot of, a lot of Marines huh. um, that went into like scout snipers and stuff. This is before MARSOC. 
they wanted to go be a Green Beret. So we had several Marines okay. that had been through the Marine Seer Level C. Oh. Still had to go through our version yep. of it. Hey, so get some. Slappy, yeah. It was uh, Damn Slappy. It was oh. uh it was two weeks and I remember finishing right on December fifteenth and I was just mad at the world. I had to go to oh. a Christmas break and my family was like, What is wrong with you? Oh I man. Like, I have no idea. So it's two weeks. Is the first week like some classroom and some yeah. survival stuff. Yeah. So it is. So like similar to ours then I forget how long ours was. I want to, I guess it was two weeks. Um, but so you did that at the classroom stuff and you're learning like maybe some edible plants or some tap code or whatever, like all that sort of stuff. And then you go in the field and put it in a, do patrol for a certain amount of time and then get captured. Is that how it works? We, uh, yes. So you, that's go, how it was you, with learn, us. you learn how to be basically a, a prisoner of war, you learn how to be uh, enemy combatant in different scenarios. Like if you're captured by somebody who abides by the Geneva Conventions or if you're captured by some terrorists, what do you got to do? What are your survival mechanisms and how do you give no information or the least amount of information you can? Because at some point, you know, people break you, you with without food, without sleep. There's all kinds of stuff. And so they teach you all these techniques to, that you can keep in your mind during these training scenarios. Mm -hmm. And then they reinforce them with real world training mm -hmm. or real world scenarios. So you do that in the classroom for a little while. They, you learn how to build snares and how to start fires um, and under mm -hmm. certain circumstances. And, uh, and then you, it's a culmination exercise where you go into the field and you have to serve the survival portion. Mm -hmm. And our survival portion was in December in North Carolina. So we were hungry basically the whole mm -hmm. time. We didn't eat for a while. We had some roadkill. I remember we caught one two-inch catfish, mm. and we drank a lot of pine needle tea, which at oh, the time was yeah. amazing. We were like, uh -huh. we came back home. We were like, oh, family, try this yeah. pine needle tea. And they're like, Puh. yeah, this is. They're like, what is wrong yeah, yeah. with you? And then you and then you roll right into like a like a you you're about to be captured, um, and you know they they put you put things in motion to get you where you're kind of doing an escape and evade portion where you have to get away mm -hmm. from these people trying to capture you. You get captured. There's no way around it. Yeah, they call you in, right? Yeah. Like you're yeah. Yeah. And, and so you're like, all right, cool. And then they put you through the different scenarios, wartime, um, peacetime captured, and then terrorist. And then you get put into um, like a camp and you just have to, you have to use all the techniques that you were taught to stay alive, stay alert, and then give away no information. Uh -huh. um, and, and so it's all, but you're, but you're cold, you have minimal clothing, you're not eating any food. And the scenarios were real. Um, like super, super real. And, uh, yeah, they're talking that language. They have that oh the accents, God, yeah. like the smells. I remember like, if you didn't know you weren't in a prison camp, like there, there was nothing, there was nothing sensory wise that was telling you you weren't in one. Mm -hmm. And th th this was probably one of the most realistic and hardest of any of the training yeah. that I went through. And there, there's this one point where it was a couple days into the being captured in, in a prison camp. And, um, like you said, they're all talking like a Slavic accent. So, you know, that's like the scenario. And if they, if they came out of that, um, like for instance, like, like we had a, we had a guy that like almost lost his mind and they had to come out of, um, scenario yeah. to talk to him. Like he, he, he started like peeing in his boot and drinking it cause he thought he was going to get dehydrated. So they were worried about his mental state and I don't know whatever happened to that guy, but so they came out of scenario for him and pulled him aside. But there was one of the, like three or four days in, they, the whole cadre came out of scenario and started talking to us. And by that time you haven't had any food, you haven't slept hardly at all. And you're mm -hmm. just kind of in this like almost hallucinogenic state. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as they came out of that accident, we're like, Oh man, maybe the scenario's over. And there's all the rumors rolling around about how we're going to get rescued by, you know, third special forces group. That's their training. And we didn't, we didn't know when we were going to leave. 
and they get, and so the cadre gathered everybody together in a big group, like a formation. And they just started talking to us like a normal person. But, and I don't remember exactly what they said, but it kind of slowly led into politics huh. and a little bit. And so they, they pointed out some of our, like the officers in the class that were like a captains and lieutenants. They say, Hey, why don't you come up here and tell me a little bit about this? So, you know, a couple captains came up and started talking about stuff. And I think from what I remember, they were saying some stuff that could be construed as negative towards the United mm-hmm. States because you're just in this crazy mental state. Yeah. And so then what they did is like, well, you know what? What about this flag, this American flag? So they brought up like a 10-foot flag and they had the officers holding it in front of the formation. And they're like, you know, and then there's all, you know, patriotism in this country. It's like, it's amazing. And then they started playing that song, Proud to be an American. And everybody in the crowd starts bawling. We're just crying. We're like, yes, we love America. We love our country and everything. And then they just turn the scenario back on. They start speaking in accents and they just beat the shit out of us. Everybody got beat. They're like, and then, but they're beating you and they're, they're telling you what you did wrong, what it could have been used for propaganda. Uh Like it was all this stuff. And so like, it's a reinforcement, it's a teaching moment (laughs) at the same time as getting your ass whooped. But at that point ruined that song for me. Oh, and I remember I was like, I want to kill all these guys. I was like, I'm going to stab them with an icicle. And then nobody's going to know. And I'm going to bury their, but like, I, I went through the full process in my mind. Like I was not oh, normal. Man. And then as soon as they, as soon as they ended the scenario, like when it officially ended, all the cadres out there passing out cigarettes and passing out food and trying to talk to you normal. And I was just like, at, nobody wanted to have it. So then when I went home on Christmas vacation, I was just like really standoffish and like angry the whole time. But interesting. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. That was the most realistic Training. I will yeah. never forget all the stuff they taught us. Oh yeah. Like, it, like if I ever got captured, I was like, I know what to do. Interesting. And it, was, it was hard, but well, it's cool that they taught you did uh, uh, wartime, peacetime, that sort of thing. Because ours was really so. I was ninety eight when I went through. I think, and uh, it was all Vietnam style. Like it was all based off the Vietnam's type of scenario. And then later, a few years later, I think it, yeah, before September eleventh though. I th- think it was like a test run of an advanced seer for like if you're working in lebanon get pulled off the street and like that kind of a scenario so the sights and the smells were different everything was was different and they i mean they had like you know like middle eastern type food that they had like in the wherever the building that they eventually when they captured you and put you in there but it taught you how to deal with like if the cnn camera comes in which they didn't really cover in the regular one that i went through in in 98 so it's cool that they did you know both of those types of scenarios for you uh or different types of scenarios anyway but did you live in the in do you have like a concrete little box that you lived in mm-hmm. yeah same and then that like a little uh like folgers can was your was your bathroom dude we didn't have it <laughs> you didn't yeah. even have a can we had a can there's, in ours there's a drain in the center of the little oh we didn't have a drain and, though and it i know that sloped just a touch so you would oh we didn't have that that was yeah. that that's interesting yeah <laughs> ours is just a i remember it being just a box and of of cement and there was one next to you it was all like lined up like a kennel yeah it was like a kennel that's and where I got the uh, with a cage with a little cage in the front so you can see out um, but, uh, yeah, a cage with a lock on it, I think. And then, uh, uh, like a Folgers coffee can, I think in there, that was it, but there wasn't a drain. I don't remember as far as I'm, yeah, but, uh, but, it, but same type of experience. It was very yeah. similar. I do remember we did get to eat though, maybe a couple days before we went on e e So part of that survival thing when we're out there living and they brought us all back together to teach us how to skin a rabbit. 
And I remember it came out of this box that said, I love my pet. Like it came, <laughs> it came from a pet store and, uh, yeah. So, but I remember it being delicious. It was so yes. good. We had rabbits too. And they put in carrots, they put in uh, potatoes. So it sounds like we had a little better than you guys did, at least for that one meal. Um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. Carrots, potatoes, onions, and rabbit and water. And it was so good. Best thing you ever had. It right was, there, it yeah. was so good this day. I'm like, Oh, I volunteered to clean it, clean the pan. Uh, just, thinking that maybe I could get like a little bit off the, the bottom or something, maybe something burnt down there or something like that. But, uh, man, that was wild. Um, our rescue was different though. Like I remember that that was awesome. Like we had the rescue, like the rumor that you had, that's what we had. Um, we had the real thing though. It was cool. And then, um, American flag goes up the whole deal, but I think we, they put all the instructors in a line and we had to go through and like shake hands. I think if memory serves, but still, you're like, you. Yeah. Man. Oh, yeah. I mean, someone's been slapping you for a week, uh, you know, or however many days exactly it is. But, um, yeah. And then all of a sudden, you're just making nice. like. Yeah. We had this We had this dude. He was like, I, I, I felt like a tiny little insect compared to him. He had been 6'6", at least. His name was Chaos. Giant black guy. Huge hands. And he always had a, he always had a, a cigar and a hat. And he would always try to try to like make you feel like you're the littlest thing in the world. He'd put his hat on you and put his sunglasses on you and give you a cigar and put it in your mouth. And then when you didn't answer or do something right, he would just pummel you with these giant hands. Oh. Cigar would go flying out of the room. And then you see him afterwards and you're like, what do I do? Because right. I don't like you at all. I don't ever oh. see you again. Yeah, those slaps, they don't feel great. It takes a special person to do that kind of training. And I, I feel like they're going to save some lives or they, yeah. they will. It, it just takes the you remember person. it. I remember it. Like yeah. it was, uh, it was definitely yeah. impactful, you know? Dang. So you come out of that, you go home, get a little couple weeks off for Christmas and then you're back in it. And what happens next? So that's the job phase. So Camo. So 18 okay. echo is a Camo guy. Did you choose it or did they assign it? Uh, they assigned it to me. I initially was going to be a Charlie an engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, but then based on needs of the unit, they said we need echoes. Okay. So I became an echo after that. And, um, you learn, radios and batteries and then satellite and antenna theory. Um, and we were the first class that they started doing networking. So we had to learn a little bit about IP addresses and, mm. you know, uh, make it VPNs and stuff like that. Oh, cool. Just barely getting into it. And mm. that was the first class that they stopped teaching Morse code too. I was so, going to ask yeah, about that. No more. I had the Morse code. Yeah, they didn't do it, man. We learned, we learned all the new stuff, but the radios I learned on, we didn't ever use the radios in group because they were like old stuff from Vietnam style stuff. Like a prick 77. So, yeah. And the piss five, you remember the piss five? Oh yeah. PSC five. Yeah. That one too. Mm-hmm. We never used it. We had the, all the, oh, I the used golfs, it. the one, yeah, the golf. And yeah, all yeah. That. yeah. 117 golf. Yeah. And there was a hotel that came out anyway, regardless. Oh, yeah. Camo talk. Camo yeah, talk. And, and when we, when we did a lot of training scenarios for combo stuff later on, I was always angry because you're always carrying the heaviest, rucksack because you got all the antennas and the batteries and you try to cross load but everybody always has an excuse no i don't have enough room for that stuff and you always carry the heavy stuff and then it evolved into whenever we were out i'd get woken up in the middle of the night and they'd be like hey man my internet's broke you need to come fix it so like, like that the, anything with electricity uh combo guy even though it's probably a charlie engineer thing that's yeah. wild man <laughs> yeah and how long was that then that was four months okay four months oh four ago. months yeah I can't those. remember how long mine was. I don't think it was four months though, but that's pretty serious. It was, t- it was tough with a lot of the, the tests too. You had to know all the antenna theory, like all the HF and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And then you went into the field for the, the, the field training exercise called max gain. 
and everybody's carrying 130 pound rucksacks and you're doing patrolling and ambushes and you still got to make all your shots. You got to do yeah. high frequency shots with like these, these antennas. Oh and yeah. You just take a the length you have to figure. Oh yeah. God. And then you had to do satellite shots too. So everybody's carrying all kinds of radios and stuff. Oh yeah. Did um, you guys do uh low pro what LPI LPD, uh, low probability interception, low yeah. probability detection, black magic. That's yeah, yeah. That was black magic, man. How that stuff worked. Yeah. That was pretty cool doing that sort of thing. I remember that. That was, uh, that was interesting. Um, <clears throat> more so because I just knew what it was. Um, and other people, you know, allowed you to kind of contribute. It was, but, it was fun. We did a lot of stuff in, in Asia, just practicing for it, you know, just, yeah. do, I, do I run a speaker? <coughs> do we go into the tree? Do we run a long wire, like a 30 foot wire on the ground? <coughs> but yeah. 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 The comp stuff. So it's interesting because it also allows you to be, um, in mission planning. Mm -hmm. really involved in all aspects of mission planning because you have to have a, you know, the comms are an integral part of all of that. But, uh, so you graduate that course and then what you meet back up with the, with the rest of the class, mm -hmm. everybody comes back together for Robin Sage. Nice. Robin Sage is the, the final culmination exercise in SF where you take everything you've learned and you, you go out and you put it to use in a uh, simulated environment. So, um, one, one of the main mission sets that SF does is unconventional warfare and it's uh, you, you basically um, infiltrate into a country and help out the locals to overthrow a hostile government. And so you teach them, you train them. And that's one of the things that we do mostly. We work with partner forces. That's what, when we go out and do operations, it's with the partner force. Um, and so we, we, we uh, infiltrated. We, did, we were going to do an airborne operation, do a static line jump. Uh-huh which would have been awful with hundreds of pounds. Like, like our rucksacks were about So you, don't, you, do you already go to Benning at this point? Have I did Benning the month after selection. So oh, okay. selection and then Benning and then the Q course. Okay, gotcha. So you already went to three yeah. weeks of uh, uh, yeah. at, at Benning and catch your static line. Yeah. yeah. Two days packed into three weeks. Messed up my ankle and all that stuff. It was good. Oh, no. But um, so we were going to jump. We were going to yeah. do static line jump. But the, the weather, you know, canceled. Okay. So we had to do a, uh, a helo infill. And then we had a long walk and I don't even remember how we just walked all night long mm -hmm. and then we linked up with our, our partner force, which is simulated gorillas, yeah. which is Jeez. really cool. Cause they were the, the Hmong, the Hmong's a, an indigenous group from Vietnam that helped out our forces. And so a lot of the folks came over to the United States after Vietnam war. So we actually had some Hmong out there cooking for us That's wild. and playing the gorillas. Wow. It was awesome. I remember we caught a couple snakes and they cooked them up for us. No way. Um, and it was, it was super cool. So we did, we did, uh, you know, raids and ambushes, patrols and everything, and then trained our guys up. And then after we got, uh, we exfilled from the mission, that was it. We, we graduated, got our green berets and were sent off to the units. Nice. Um, What's awesome. that ceremony like when you get the, get that beret? Oh, it's amazing feeling. It's one of the best feeling you're just in you know they play the ballad of the green beret in there and everybody's nice. walking in and then they you know read all the names and they talk about all the stuff you're going through and then you look back you're like man this has been near a three-year journey to get to this point wow it's a long time you know and so many people have dropped off recycled you know and this, you got less than half the people that originally started with you because the new people come and join wow. your group um and then you get to put that on and you're, and you're like this is amazing it's such wow. a good feeling but then you get to the unit uh -huh. and you're like, I don't know nothing. I know absolutely nothing. And <laughs> yeah. you have, you start from scratch, just being a sponge yeah, yeah. all over again. And where'd you go? So where'd you go after that? I went, so I came back, um, PCS back home to Tucson, Arizona with my family. My wife started working again. And then I went to up here to Camp Williams in Utah. And that's where our unit was based off. So the 19th group headquarters, there's 19th group, first battalion and Bravo company all in Camp Williams, which is really cool because 
the National Guard SF units are in different states. There, you know, there's Colorado and California and Texas, Washington, all that stuff. But for me, Utah was 12 hour drive, Texas, 12 hour drive, California is 12 hour drive. Mm. Um, cause we would go there every month. You pay your own way and everything. And, um, but you, but because Utah had group and battalion and company headquarters, you know, stuff could get done a lot quicker versus uh. say you're, you're doing a drill in Texas yeah. and nobody's do, working in Utah, then you have to wait. So okay, it was cool to have it in here. And so I got to the unit. Um, I graduated May of 2012 from the Q course. And then in July, the end of July, we went to the Philippines for a month straight there. And we did train their special action force for a while. And then I got, went, got back and did a couple training exercises here in Utah. Were you down South in the Philippines? Yeah. Mindanao. Okay. Down South in Mindanao. So that was a crazy experience too. Cause yeah. the, the Philippines, who would have ever thought you need to wear body armor and your whole kit and have a weapon and worry about IEDs and firefights in yeah. the Philippines. It's crazy. When we were there, um, the, the mayor of a city called Davao was Duterte who ended up being the president yeah. of the Philippines and he was the mayor of Davao city. It was crazy. Wow. So Mindanao is the southernmost island in the Philippines and that's where all the infighting was. And this is pre ISIS, pre black flag and all that stuff. So there was the Abu Sayyaf group. They were the Muslim extremist. There were a lot of folks in Davao who were all Christian. And then on the east side of the island, there was the new people's army, which were like communist rebels. So everybody's fighting down there and killing each other like crazy. That happened so, for a while. It's, it's well, been going on for a long it time. It just doesn't stop. Like yeah. when we were down there, our our partner force they were training got called up and had to go take do get into a firefight and take take yeah. action. So it was pretty it, it was going on. And so um Davao itself is like this Christian city mostly, and it's um managed by Duterte, who's the mayor. And the whole island was a bunch of fighting and violence. But when you came to Davao, where we were based out of on that one he had like this unspoken rule that you come there, there's no violence or else he'll kill you. He straight up would tell people, I will kill you. I will drop you out of helicopter. I will disappear you in the middle of the night. You steal rice, you deal drugs, nothing. So they would fight each other outside of Davao. And then when they came into Davao, they were all friends and just hang out. It was like wow. their little haven. It was the weirdest environment to be wow. in where we're training these guys. That's wild, yeah. man. That's uh, yeah, it's an interesting spot. It's a good experience to go and spend a little little time there. Um, so you did that. You came back, and then what do you what's what's training like back here? Um, it's it's hard. I'll be honest with you. Being a National Guard Green Beret is real tough. And as soon as I um, graduated from the course, I was like, you know, I I want to be active duty. And and my my pitch to my <laughs> wife was that I'm going to go National Guard SF because I will be home more. And then I was going to wiggle, finagle my way and go active duty later on because that's what was, was my goal. I wanted to be, that's what I wanted. Yeah. But what I found out is that you have to maintain the same standards as an active duty group, but you're working part-time. Mm -hmm. So we had, to, we had to maintain our yearly language qualification, your weapons qual, your physical fitness in any specialty. And then you had to work in all your trainings, your cycles, your deployments at the same time as having a regular job and running a family and traveling to and from drill. It's, it is tough. So what a lot of the guys do in National Guard is they become guard bums where you don't have a real job and you you have the availability to just go whenever they call you up. And you end up getting more training than you would than anybody else because there's always slots coming down and not everybody can make it. And so you uh, become your resume gets stacked being able really? to do that stuff. So I was a guard bum for a little while, Did went to shooting schools, intel schools, all, this, um, all these awesome uh, training environments. We went to Mount Rainier since I was on a mountaineering team went to mountain school and then we went to Mount Rainier and we lived up there for two weeks at 10,000 feet, summited it. We did crevasse repelling nice. combo shots. Like 
learned that you can you can take a Snickers bar and bury it 12 inches in the snow, cover it hard packed, and then you can rappel off a freaking Snickers bar to your rope. That was sketchy. Dang. Um, you did that? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yeah, it was it was awesome. And um, Yeah, I remember doing it with, with a tent peg, I think it was. Something small, and you're yeah. like, that's not going to hold me. Uh-huh. Or like when you take your you take your rope, and you I can't remember how big the bowline knot has to be, or the, the circle has to be, and you bury it a certain amount, yep. hard pack yep. it, and then you rappel off that yep. thing. Um, but we did a bunch of training, and at, at during that time, my wife and I wanted to buy a house, and she had a job, and we needed a little more income. So that's when I was like, I need to have a job, so I'm going to go be a cop in Tucson. Okay. So I went through, I applied, got accepted, went through their academy, which was just uh, just a grind because I'd gotten out of the Q course not too long ago. I've already been through basic training, and I'm going, here I am going through another academy. Uh-huh. And they're like, oh, you're prior military? Well, you get to carry the flag every day with you everywhere. So oh, wow. How long was that? That was like four months. Four months. You go home at night, though? Mm-hmm. Every Yeah, you go home at night. But you, it's the same kind of thing where you get smoked every day. And they the, the Tucson Police Academy is very good. Like they train you in uh, your, your fitness and all the laws and everything. And I was super impressed with the cadre. Mm. Very professional because Tucson's a big, a big city and there's a lot of crime and uh, the cops on there know what they're doing. They do a really good job. So I was four months of that. And then um, I got on the street doing all my, my, it's called FTO field training. And it's like your, your advanced training and all that stuff. And during that time, the unit back here in Utah was busy like lots of deployments lots of training and so i would there's in you know as as a requirement the law states that they the tucson police would have to hold my job Mm. um while i would go train and everything so i could technically leave and come back and go and come back and go but it was like i felt really guilty and it's a hard job to be a cop and and to be honest with you after i wore the green suit and got to grow up my beard and do all this cool stuff and you go home and you wear a blue suit where it's you're almost at war every single day and everybody's filming you. It was, it was tough and I, I did not take to it. And there and I, I I feel like cops do not get paid the amount of money they should for the amount of responsibility and they don't get the training that they should yeah. for what their job is because there was fights every day, guns being drawn, knives, bats, drugs, God. tasers like every single day. And so I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. And so we were able to purchase our house. I did not enjoy it. And then the, at the same time, the unit had tons of missions and opportunities coming up. So I ended up tendering my resignation as a cop. And then I straight after that, I went to another shooting school, another Intel school uh, with SF. What were the shooting and Intel schools? So Safawik. Yeah. Safawik, it's a two week special forces advanced urban combat school. You learn a lot of flat range stuff, transitioning, you learn room clearing, um, it was awesome. I love, I mean, you shoot thousands and thousands of rounds in two weeks and your fingers get blisters from loading all those rounds and you just, you're like, all right, cool. The breaching was awesome. You know, just doing all the room clearing. It was, it was amazing. Nice. And then right after that we did, it's called HFTTL, um, hostile force tagging, tracking, locating. It's a lot of stuff with like beacons and like nice. learning, you know, all the, all your routes, your SDRs okay. and all that stuff. Um, and then that was three or four weeks long. And then I had a small break over Christmas. And then right after that, uh, I reclassed from an echo, a combo guy to the Fox, the, oh, in, yeah, Intel. the Intel and assistant operations guy. Okay. And at that point I was, Did like, you go to the Intel, you know, to the Fox truck. There's a school, right? Yeah. It's four months in Fort Bragg. Yeah. So how was that? It was amazing. I, I wanted to go to that. I loved, I loved that course. I was like, if I'm going to do Intel, uh-huh. this is the way to do it. Cause I'm on the ground. Mm-hmm. I get to do all the t- Intel. I get to do all the different, um, 
types of intel that's going to come your way. I get to talk to all the people. We get to collaborate. I get to create target packages. I get to see mm-hmm. that through. We go on the mission and, and finish it. I mean, it was it was awesome. Man, that I really wanted to go to that. And I forget when. It must have been when I was still enlisted um, because there was some, some army schools that we could go to, you know. And uh, and I think that was – anyway, I was trying to get there. It didn't, never happened. But I was always impressed with the uh, the SF Foxtrots that I would, I would meet and that training because the Intel, what I, that I, Intel school that I went to um, before I went to BUDS, because you got to get that MOS or mm-hmm. we have an A school, um, you had to get one beforehand. They don't do it this way now because they figure you're going to fail out of BUDS and then they're just going to throw you back to the fleet mm-hmm. with whatever MOS that you had, whatever your, your A school was. Um, but it was really geared towards Soviet Union Cold War, even though it was 96. Um, it was, uh, and I went to BUDS in January 97, but uh it was still, it wasn't like SF ground combat. It wasn't focused on that stuff, the stuff that I really wanted to know. And actually I feel like I could have tested out of that course just because of all the Tom Clancy that I read and all like the Tom Clancy, like companion books and the silhouettes that were in those things back then that I was growing up with in the eighties and these books, like how to, how to uh, identify a silhouette of a, what was it called? A Russian Soviet bear bomber type thing or whatever. Anyway, I felt like I could have tested out of that that course like day one but um regardless um foxtrot course yeah. all the sf foxes that i've um worked with were all super impressive it's a it's a heck of a course and, yeah. and going back to the russian stuff in 2006 when i went through the intel analyst school in fort Chuka, they were teaching cold war stuff still oh, ipbs wow. all that stuff like big force on force stuff in 06 i mean it's only been three years since iraq but you think they would have transitioned yeah um and and on an even more side note was a super random uh, reference, but as a when I was younger, there was a video game, uh, Ghost Recon by Tom Clancy, uh-huh. Ghost Recon, and yeah. on the very first Ghost Recon, the intro to that video game, I remember I don't know why, but it says the year is two thousand and eight, and the world teeters on the brink of war, and Russian tanks are positioned in the Caucasus Mountains, ready to invade Georgia. No right? way! And I swear to, that that happened in two thousand eight. I remember being in Iraq. And I, and this game came out in the early 2000s, like 2001, 2002, yeah. I remember playing it. And I remember b- being in Iraq in 08 and that happening. And I just about lost my mind. No way. But nobody played there had, yeah. had the experience. So everyone was like, all right, cool. Yeah. But I was like, I can't, like, this is like a <laughs> prediction in the Yeah. Future. That's crazy. I did not know that. It's nuts. Like the intro to the video game, the year is 2008, the world, you know, it, it was super cool. Dang. That guy was a, that guy was a prophet in that aspect. That's wild. And the, you know, the SF, um, warrant officer course. I think they have a lot of kind of overlap with what the, uh, this is just observation for me looking and not having gone obviously to either one, but, uh, that the warrant officers that I worked with in the SF were also very impressive. Uh, and it seems like that there was a very significant Intel overlap with whatever they're doing in that SF specific warrant officer course. Cause I think in the Navy, I think it's, everybody goes to the warrant officer course. You could have a seal there. You could have, you know, somebody from the fleet, you could have a submariner or whatever. You could have a pilot. Um, you know, uh, they're all in the same one, I think not positive, but the SF one is at just SF, I think for warrant officers. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and, and as far as everything overlaps on a team. Mm. So in SF, you have 12 man ODA, which is a operation detachment alpha, which is just your team, your ODA. And within the 12 men, you have, I guess I should not say men nowadays but 12 people. Um, oh, really? So there's females in there now? I'm pretty sure they've, I'm pretty sure there is, it's happened. Huh. I'm pretty sure. Um, if not, it is in the process, but um, there's overlap of everything. So you have uh, two positions per job. So for instance, you have your 18 Bravos, which is your weapons. 
Charlie's engineer, Delta's medical, Echo's commo. And you have two of each one, so they overlap and they cross-train. With the Fox, I'm, I would have been the only Fox, and I'm kind of like the assistant team sergeant. So I would be Intel and assistant operations, so I'd overlap some with the team sergeant, the Zulu. And then you have the the warrant officer, the 180 Alpha, and the 18 Alpha, mm-hmm. which is the officer, the captain. So it's a lot of overlap and cross-training so that mm-hmm. you can split team operations and go and still be effective and not have to take the entire team out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the warrant officers did a lot of overlap. They had to know a little bit everything. You had to be prior enlisted. So you have to know that side to be an NCO, and then you have to know a little bit about each job, and they're kind of handpicked to get to that mm-hmm. position. They should be able to take on any position if necessary. Yeah. But yeah, they're they're always all the guys I know that went out 180 Alpha were awesome. Yeah, I was like, well, I was like, man, I wish I could go to the Army SF Warrant Officer School. I think that would be pretty cool because um, all those guys were, I mean, were super impressive, and I learned a lot from them. Uh, having worked with a lot of SF guys last couple of years and last couple of deployments, I should say, um, I worked more, had more SF guys um, as part of my task units than than I did SEALs, mm-hmm. and so I got uh, some great relationships with uh, with those guys, and was always super impressed with those those foxes and uh, and the warrant officers. But uh, man, that's wild! So you get to go a bunch of these different different schools. You're building up the the resume. What other ones did you get to go to? So after that, we did. Well, it's just uh, kind of on the theme of everything happening for a reason. But being a police officer, quitting police officer job, being going straight at all these trainings. And then right after that, I went to a Safau, another Safawik, the shooting school, right after the four-month um, 18 Fox course. And then we started pre-MOP for Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So everything back-to-back, boom, 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 boom. And then um, did the Safawik, did the train-up for Afghanistan, and then we went to Afghanistan in 2015. So okay. I, ended, I ended up quitting being a police officer in 2014. By July or August 2015, we were in Afghanistan. So it's... It's just it's just eerily weird how everything it's like it's like this path leading me on this on this path. But um, yeah, we were in Afghanistan, and actually, I, you know th- that time that trip was a tough trip. Um, and I know you know a little bit about it because there was a book written about it, and you wrote um, yeah. a review about it. And I appreciate it because of course. the review that you wrote, I, I can't remember exactly what you wrote, but it was like something to the line of it was an uncomfortable truth that needed to be told because a lot of books you read, you want like the hero to kill the villain or to, to succeed and you want a happy ending and stuff. And this, this book, unfortunately is not that it's like a very uncomfortable truth about stuff that happened post Afghanistan war. And even going back to the political stuff we talked about, like a lot of political and high level military failures. So it's a, it's definitely an uncomfortable book. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, you put me in touch with the, with the author and wrote a blurb, read it. Um, but man, it's powerful. Powerful. What's the title again? Do you remember? So it's called Eagle Down by Jessica Donati. Yeah, there it is. And she uh, she was a bureau chief for Afghanistan for the Wall Street Journal for several years, had access from the special ops teams on the ground all the way up to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And so she wrote, she connected a lot of dots and wrote some stories and and wrote about it. And um, I am one of the main characters, which for me, I'm kind of 50-50 on it because I am not the kind of guy that likes any sort of attention. I just like to be in the background, seeing other people succeed. And I got, I do not <laughs> need to be in the attention in the spotlight, but we talked about it. And because of my story and what happened, it, it ties everything together. And it's a good story for me. Um, yeah. And it shows everything and, you know, how I was affected on the battlefield 
because of a lot of stuff that happened. So yeah, yeah, it was a couple of years ago I, I wrote that. I was actually going to try to find it before you got here so we could hold it up and talk about it here. But you saw inside, there's boxes everywhere. Oh three model, it's like yeah. it's chaos yeah. in there. So I couldn't, I couldn't locate the right box. But um, but yeah, it's a, everybody should read to read that book. Highly recommend it. Um, it was definitely an emotional read, um, especially knowing you. And then reading this thing, I'm like, oh my, I mean, just, geez. It's tough. Oh, man. But what's, uh, so how, how does it work when you're getting ready to go? Do you have to come up here to uh, to Camp Williams first and you're palletizing and getting everything ready to go? How long are you here before you zip off and do you say goodbye to your family in Tucson and then you're here for a week or two and then go? Or how does that work? I can't, I can't remember the, how many, like the time, I think it was a couple months of pre-mobilization training. We did training here in Camp Williams because there's a lot of assets here. There's air mm -hmm. assets, helicopters and aircraft, and we have all our ground vehicles, all our weapons and stuff, you know, so it's easy to use it here. They have the ranges at Camp Williams. Um, did a lot of training there. And then we went to Virginia and I can't remember the name of the, the army base there, but that's where we did most of our pre-mob training. It was like a, it was like a, um, checking the box on a lot of different skill sets that we had mm. to do. We had to basically be certified by an yep. army group that says you guys are certified to go overseas. Right. And so we did a lot of that over there. Um, and I think that between the two Utah and Virginia was a couple months. And then I remember I was able to say goodbye to my wife. She flew into North Carolina. Oh, to Charlotte. She, she met me in Charlotte. We hung out for a couple of days. And then we, from there we flew over to Germany and our pilot got sick. And I, we don't know, the rumor was going around that he got food poisoning or some kind of alcohol poisoning. So our pilot in the C-17 got sick. So we got laid over in Germany for a week. Oh, wow. And it was awesome. So I got to go see some sites in okay. Germany, go see Patton's grave and go see um, the the memorial to the Battle of the Bulge. Wow. And all these, so it was, it, the, it was amazing. And it's really cool to see all this, these uh, um, represent, representations of what America has done in another country to go see white graves you know grave sites and be like these people fought and died for freedom for an entirely other country it's mm -hmm. super powerful and then when you go see that the monument to um, the battle of the bulge mm -hmm. in uh, belgium it is massive oh, wow. it's massive and there's huge pillars and there's each state is represented by a pillar and then there's just huge lists of names that come all the way down the pillars and it's this giant uh, circle and you can climb up on top and overlook where the battle was fought. Wow. And you're like, man, I'm in Belgium. And you see what America did for, for the other countries during World War II. It's incredibly, it's literally giving me goosebumps right now. But um, the reason why it was interesting to me is because after I got injured a few years ago, we went back and I brought the family and we saw all these things. But this time I was in prosthetic legs touring all these same spots that I had seen. And I didn't know going in there that I was going to get injured so it was the most surreal experience to go back and step on the same places that I had stepped with my real legs in Germany. It's crazy. Wow. It's the craziest thing. Dude. Um, yeah. Wild. Family loved it though. And yeah. there's so much history in Germany. Wow. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful country. But we, so we stayed there for about a week and then we came into, <clears throat> and then we got to Afghanistan. And like I said, it, it was a, it was a tough trip because this was August and I, the war had ended officially earlier in the year. So it was not a, a war anymore. It was a contingency operation. The, the result, the, the goal is to have Afghanistan take control of their country and we'll just sit and we will help advise them verbally. We're not supposed to be giving them supplies. Like we were told, you ain't going to give them so much as a chem light a bottle of water. They are not getting any air support. You're not going out with them. They have to do it for themselves at this point. And, and what they what we were hearing made sense. But we were also hearing that teams were still going out. But because of the, the rules of engagement, you got no air support unless 
your unit was pinned down and unable to maneuver. You had to quote that. And you were basically red on all your weapons. So you had to use all your mortars or Carl G's. You had to use all your organic stuff and be on the verge of being run over before you would get air support. And every air support request had to go up to the commanding general of Afghanistan, which is not a quick process. <laughs> so we went there looking and we like, this wow. is crazy. And so to top that off, we were going to Helmand province, oh, wow. which is one of the worst. I mean, they're all, they're all really violent, but Helmand province is very bad. There's tons of, it's the, I think some, something around 90% of the world's opium comes from Helmand. So it's not a place that anybody who deals in, you know, the narcotics wants to see that place secure because then your, your, your source is gone. So that place is always going to be unstable. So we were the only team in Helmand province. There's no other fobs. There's no other bases. There's 20 people in all of Helmand. And so uh, it's just crazy. It was a crazy trip. So as soon as we got in there, we had uh, an insider attack that's in the book. It's called a green on blue. We're basically our partner force shot up us, uh, shot up our guys as we were coming in a gate. We lost um, two guys, Forrest Sibley and Matt Rowland. Um, and then 13 other people got injured um like two days in a country our own partner two force, days our own partner for shot us up so then we were supposed to be going out on operations with them knowing that this just happened and we're like we got to vet you we got to vet these guys who just came back from vacation and got turned by the taliban or whatever we had to go through the whole thing because they the, opened up with what they open up with say that again. what did they shoot what did they, they uh, were, it was a pkm pkm coming in the gate so basically so I was not. I was not at the scene. I was down south at this place called Camp Dwyer, um, like talking to medical folks, arranging for med medical care and everything, um, which was ironic because that night the sirens went off on the base, and we woke up and we knew that the only reason the medevac sirens are going to go off is something happened to our guys because they were within range. So automatically my stomach dropped, and so we heard it come over the radio. And you know, in the chaos of something like that happening. Sometimes you don't know, is it mm -hmm. an enemy attack? Was it, it, was it accidental fire mm -hmm. or whatever? So a couple different reports came through. And so the helicopters, remember, I'm spinning up because they, they were like, oh, friendlies got hurt. And then they spun down because like, no, it's just Afghans. And then they spun up again. They're like, no, it's, it's just like one or two Americans hurt. And so then they left and they got there and they were undermanned. They couldn't fit everybody in the helos. And so they, they went and picked them up and then they brought them back to us. So we were the people that had to had to unzip the body bags and identify these dudes, and we're just like, oh my god, we've been here for two days, and this is crazy. So that like that like set the stage for the rest of the mission. Sets that we did because we were like, we don't really trust these guys. But yeah. the, but the only time that we did trust them was when we were actually out on a mission because they needed us to survive. So back in base, it was like everybody's on guard. You know, spikes out. You got your oh, guns man. and everything. Yeah, it was, it was a crazy, so it started off like a really tough trip like that, so. Oh, that is, was the, uh, the PKM on the, on a, was it vehicle mounted, or was it on like a, like a guard post, or what? It was on a, yeah, so, we, so basically, so what happened was, we were, we were picking up the SODIF, uh, Special Operations Task Force Commander, and the Sergeant Major, and their entourage from the field, and we, and. They're coming for like a visit? Like they're to, coming for a visit, we just got there, but, and, so we were on camp, um, Leatherneck in Bastion down south. It was a giant Marine Corps base. And it's really weird because the Marines were ordered to evacuate that base and they had like two hours to leave an entire base a few years back. So when we went there, we had to go there on salvage runs and we had given it over to the Afghans and it was like Chernobyl, what I felt like Chernobyl looked like because there's like plates with old food, there's pictures, there's pillows and blankets everywhere that they had to just leave and just get up and just get out of there in a couple hours because they had okay. to get out so quick. So this whole facility was controlled by the Afghans and we had a tiny little base and we had to go through five different checkpoints 
uh, to get to our base that were controlled by Afghans. And there were night codes every night that changed every night. And our interpreter had to get those night codes for us. So he would, he would get out and he would go talk to the Afghans because the Afghans, they would see our, um, our RG-32s. I think it's 32s. And they, they had their AKs at the, each checkpoint and they would still draw down on us and start screaming at us. But they knew, I mean, we got a freaking, we got our, our Mark 19s and 50s up top. And it's like, they knew who we were and they would still draw down on us every time going through the gate. So going through each gate, the interpreter would get out and give them the codes and he'd get, he would give them the codes, get back in the truck and we'd drive through on the final gate to get into our base. He gave them the codes and he stepped aside and waved everybody through. I wasn't there, but this is what he told me. And so we went through and the, and the, there was a bus that went through with, with the convoy that had a bunch of people. And Matt Rowland was driving. He was a CCT, a uh, combat air controller that controls aircraft and drops bombs and all that stuff. He was driving, and he had stayed late because his counterpart was coming in late. So he stayed late to give him a good handover. And his counterpart, um, for Sibley, was a CCT as well. And they went through, and they, the PKM opened up on top and and i wasn't there so this is from what i understand the peak it was a pkm but it was like a little like a little like a, a guard post on top of one of the towers and opened up as they went through and so matt um saved a lot of people's lives and he went on the radio and he said you know gunfire i can't remember what he said attack and so everybody else was able to get out and eliminate the threat but he sacrificed his own life because of that because he got shot right away just blasted through the front of it oh. so it was yeah it was crazy oh, so you guys took out that threat like Man, yeah, like everybody in the convoy got. We had a third third group, um, Criff group with us, or that were that were coming in at the same time because Hellman was going crazy. The whole the whole province was falling. Like the Taliban were basically surrounding each district center and then mm-hmm. saying, "Hey, citizens and military and police, you guys got two options: you can leave and leave all your weapons with us, or we're going to kill you all." So everybody just spread out so whenever we went to a district center to go resecure it it was like empty you're going to these little mud hut cities where there's not a single person inside of it except for like the one military outpost that would want to stay and fight so like we would have to like fight through so anyways um the whole the whole province was starting to go down like being like they're going on a massive offensive and so we we're having other odas and other teams coming in and we were just we got to do a lot of like a lot of firefights a lot of missions a lot of air air support and stuff uh, but that like started the trip off, so like automatically we're like just pissed. Oh, yeah, and so those guys, do you send guys back with them? Do they like like the guys that uh, the guy killed? Do you send people back with them and you get back filled with other fresh bodies mm-hmm. from the states, or what? What happened then? Yeah, so we got um, we had another CCT coming in, coming Ryan Ranowski, and he's a solid, solid dude. He came in and backfilled those guys, and I don't know who replaced. Um, the other guy that was with third group and then Ryan stayed with us the whole um, whole mission he ended up getting shot after I got injured and I got hit in December he got shot in January when they were inside a compound and the they were the Taliban lob and like AK rounds kind of like mortars just spraying mm-hmm. hoping it would come down he got shot in the leg in the femoral so he ended up having a tourniquet on for I don't remember exactly. I know it was over 12 hours on his leg no way. And, a, and, a, and a medevac helo came to pick him up and landed in a compound and clipped a tail rotor on a tree and had a hard crash. So there was a down helo. The next one tried to come in and pick him up and it got shot up and everybody in there got a purple heart. Wow. And then that's the one where, um, uh, Matt McClintock was like trying to go clear another landing zone. He got shot in the head and passed and died. It was just, it's, it was a crazy, crazy trip. We were driving around that, um, whole province with trucks, getting into fights, doing, I mean, and Helmand, Helmand is, 
is all about IEDs. There's tons of IEDs there, tons of IEDs. And the only saving grace for us was that since the Americans had pulled out, drawn back, the IEDs were smaller for all the little Toyota pickup trucks, the tech mm. trucks for the Afghans. So we were driving in RGs. And so the IEDs that we encountered on the road were pretty small, which was good. But yeah, it's just a, it's a shitty area, man. Like that's a really bad area to be. Did you know that going in? Like what was the briefing yeah. before you went in? So you were as yeah. prepped as you could be. I wasn't like, hey, you're going to X place. Oh, no, now you're going to this place, and it's not good. Uh, so you had, had some briefs ahead of time. You're going in there. What was your mission? Like, what, what, did they, what was your, uh, the commander's intent for your time in country? It was a little bit of mixed bag on, from what I took from it. Um, the, the overall mission for the country and going forward was that we're going to advise, train, advise, and assist from the talk. Um, but because, because, excuse me, because the provinces and not just Hellman were ha starting to have a lot of issues, they were starting to send teams out and go forward. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, because of the war had ended and it was a contingency operation, technically we're not supposed to be, we're not supposed to be out. So whenever stuff would get reported, there's quote, no troops on the ground, no boots on the ground. And we're like, we are on the ground shooting right now, getting into, getting into fights. And so it was a little weird and it went, um, it was a super dynamic um, time frame, and I wouldn't want to be a commander during that time, but uh, the commanders were making the best decisions I could, I felt like. And it went from, you're not going to do anything. So let me back up. So there's another province next to Hellman province called Kandahar. We went to Kandahar initially to the special ops base there, and our mission was to go expeditionary into Helmand and set up a base for a few weeks a month and come close it up and come back and keep going expeditionary because the rules of engagement didn't like, they didn't want troops full time in Helmand. It was weird. But as soon as we had the green on blue in Helmand, we never left. We never really stayed there the whole time. And so it went from, we're going to stay back at the talk and advise them to, Hey, you guys need to get out and go do stuff. You guys need to go out and clear some white space. So we were training the seventh special operations Kandak, which was like a battalion of kind of ranger, rangerish, uh, Afghanistan, mm. Afghans. And um, they were known as some of the more dirty Taliban supporters in the in the country. So we knew that going in there. But Jeez. we had about 110 of them. And because the the Afghan, the ANA, I think it was the 215th Corps, was over-reporting their numbers, their manpower, so that they could get more weapons and supplies, <laughs> way undermanned that our commandos were doing every possible mission set in the country, personal security, route clearance, creating white space, direct action, doing it all when they weren't supposed to be doing that. So our commandos got pushed out everywhere. Like, like they would be taken away from us, go do a mission and then come back. So we didn't know what was, going. we were literally just adapting day by day, what we were going to do. Mm -hmm. And there was, there was a period of time where this little, um, is a district called Musakala is real bad. It's in Helmand. It's a little bit North and the North part of Helmand is 100% controlled by the Taliban during that time. And Musakala was a little bit South of that. And so we got the authority to use air support. And we, so we sent our, we stayed at the base, sent our commandos up there to start doing some missions, creating white space, going after bad guys. And we were allowed to use air support from the talk from our base. So we were controlling drones and aircraft and we were able to take it to the enemy pretty, pretty solid for, I don't remember. It was like maybe a week or something like that. Mm. But then when they came back, the air supply, the air support got taken away. And I remember thinking like, well, why are you giving, taking, giving, taking? It was real weird. And it was because they were trying to, not draw attention to what was going on because this country was going down like it was bad especially in Hellman. and i remember 
one time we were looking on the drone feed and we saw a truck with an anti-aircraft gun, a ZPU, driving around Helmand Province. And I'm on the horn. I'm like, get me some air support now. We need to take that out because that could shoot down a helicopter and that would affect our missions where we can go. And by the time I got a hold of somebody, the truck had parked next to a, a little compound and they put a blue tarp over it. And they're like, no, sorry, we can't touch that because it's next to a, it, the civilian casualty potential could be too high. But like I, and I said, well, I've been watching it. There's nobody in there except for the bad guys. They're like, nope, sorry. So we, we had to sit there and just watch it, never touched it. And it affected where we could fly in the area. So like the air support got shut off. But then later on, certain districts started to fall. So we had to go other places. And so we had um, Marja. Mars is an awful place. A lot of Marines lost their lives in Marja. And it's in Southern Helmand. And we were planning a huge mission, huge, like 20 plus vehicle clearing operation to go after one bad guy in another district. And in the, in the middle of the night, our commandos just disappeared. So we woke up the next morning and we were supposed to leave in two days for the mission. And the commandos were gone, 110 of them. We're like, where did they go? So we got a hold of the, the 215th Afghan Corps and their colonel took him as personal security detail down to Marja because Marja got surrounded and all the civilians left and there's a little army outpost in there. So the commandos went behind enemy lines, got in and they were fighting the Taliban. And I guess the Taliban had uh, night vision goggles and ladders, scaled the walls in the middle of the night and just shot them like fish in a barrel, killed like, I can't, they told us 20, but you don't know how many they actually killed. So we had to scrap that mission and get all the vehicles we could together. And we mounted a rescue mission, had to drive down there. We had to clear IEDs, dropping bombs. And then we got in there and the, the commanders were so scared that they left the ladders on the wall. So we had to go around and push the ladders off the wall. And so they were so excited. Like the same commandos that had shot us up before were like, you saved our lives. Like they were so happy. And so we had to stay down there and do some, do some clearance operations, get some white space, push out. Uh, Taliban were dropping mortars on us every day. We had Apaches and um, C-130s overhead every single day. But then it got to the point where it was like, well, we can't stay down here forever. We need to start pushing out and checking other spots. And so there were, there was like a route that went North and we were going to get out that way. But, um, we had a, a vehicle rollover because we had to have a bundle resupply drop. And because all the GPS guided bundles had been removed from country, they had to do it by the old fashioned way and drop them on a time. Okay. And they, all, they dropped into canals and everything. Oh, wow. So we had a vehicle rollover in a canal upside down. Oh. We were trying to get it. We were, and we, what happened with that? Uh, we had to have another team come pull security and get a wrecker out there. Everybody the made it though? Route. Everybody made it out? Nobody died, thank God. Jeez. But uh, it was, that was super bad, man. So... All was canal of what was water in it? Or yeah. Was it dry? Oh yeah, yeah. It was totally upside down. And our and our gunner in the turret did. He was in the turret, and not in the crows on the remote control system. So he saw what was happening. He ducked down inside, and he got banged like banged up a little bit, but not seriously injured. So luckily, we're good on that. But we spent a bunch of time fighting out there. We we inter the our unit we that we were training with the the commandos. We intercepted communication, and they were talking to the Taliban, telling them where we were going, and we were getting them shooting at us. And we're like, come on, man. Um, but anyways, we tried to get out of there and go north, and there's a bunch of IEDs that were under the asphalt that they peeled them up, put IEDs, and laid the asphalt back mm -hmm. down. And we didn't have the stuff to get through that, so we had to go back out the back way. And as we were going out the way we came, all the Afghan uh, army were pissed that we were leaving, and they were yelling that they're going to take us to court. And they just started shooting at us and trying to shoot our trucks. As we were, so we had to, like, duck down on the trucks and just get out of there as quick as we could. Dude. But it was, like, it was crazy. And so, so then, um, so then we went back to our main base and we planned a mission to, uh, Sangin, which is another real bad place in Hellman. And that's where I ended up getting hurt. We planned a, 
a helicopter infill we went in and then we had some places we were going to check out that were um like uh taliban like id factories that we had marked you know we looked at them we were like yeah we need to check that out and i remember we were in a couple different elements and i had um a bomb dog and his handler i had an eod explode like an explosive ordnance disposal tech specialty dude with us and we had a local guy that had a, a metal detector that would walk in front of us and we'd pay him for every ID found. So we were stacked on that kind of capability, which was fortunate for me because we ended up finding a straight up ID factory. So it was, it was a bunch of spray paint on the outside of the walls as you, you like you look at the opening and there's like barbed wire and rock stacked up and all the locals knew that's a Taliban area. So we sent in the dude with the little metal detector first and he found uh, two or three pressure plates with like two pieces of wood with perforated like aluminum on a kind of stapled to it and then a piece of foam so that when they compress and somebody steps on it they complete a circuit and initiate a bomb and those were double stacked with our two artillery i think they were one of no they were mortars they're 80 81 millimeter mortars there's three of them that would have like that would have messed somebody up pretty bad and i remember seeing in the corner of the first building efps i remember seeing like in Afghanistan, which never happens, which was real weird, like little small, probably six, eight inch EFPs. So then they cleared the they cleared those pressure plates and we started searching the compound. And every time you do that, you have to walk in the same footsteps as a person that's clearing in front of you. So you know there's no ID. So we were kind of limited on where we were walking. And so we found like living quarters. There was a fire that had been going. They had just left. There's an escape tunnel, a motorcycle and everything. We found all the initiating devices, like just household items. Like you could look around and see a clock or, you know, a watch or something. There's, they're strewn all over the floor. They're going to create IDs from them. And then I remember hearing yelling and the, our Afghans had found one more little like shack inside this big compound. And so I sent in my interpreter and I can't remember, man, three or four different uh, Afghan commandos. Then the guy, the little guy with the metal detector went in and then the dude, the bomb dog and his handler went in and then they yelled, Hey, you know, we found a hole in the ground with probably homemade explosives, like a white powdery substance. So I walked in and looked at the f floor and I was like, yep, yep, that's it. So then I stepped back out to go make a radio call and I stepped on a pressure plate in the threshold that I had walked over. The dog didn't smell. The dude with the, the metal detector didn't see. Nobody stepped and I stepped on it. Um, and so it had to have been like not pressed down enough or not in the right spot. And then it, the one that I stepped on was very, I'm very fortunate that it was not the same as the other ones because this was a homemade explosives in a five gallon jug and the lethality of that is way less than what the other ones might be dead for sure with the other ones. So stepped on that. And then I remember being thrown into the air, like kind of going unconscious for a second and then waking up, like sitting in a crater and looking down and seeing right leg is completely gone. Left leg is there, but it's like crooked and in different pieces. And then had like this freak out moment, like, Oh my God, I tried to move my legs. And then I couldn't move them. They were just like, and I'm laying there. I'm like, oh my God, what happened? So then by, by the grace of God or something, I was like, I got to take care of myself. And so, and I know I wasn't like in a fully, like a mental, like awareness. I wasn't fully aware of everything, but I grabbed my tourniquet and I started trying to throw my tourniquet on myself. And at that time, everybody started coming to render aid with me. And I remember like getting a fentanyl, my fentanyl lollipop and like sucking on that. And then they ended up um, giving me some ketamine and then I was out after that. And uh, I, for me, I was the worst wounded out of that. And then the dog lost its tail. My interpreter lost his eyes. And then everybody else got a bunch of shrapnel that was 
unfortunately my bone turned into shrapnel and that stuff. But, um, and right at that point, daylight was coming. The Taliban started like firing cause they didn't really typically fight at night as much as we did. So they heard a bomb they knew. So they started firing and our dudes had to get up and start firing Carl Gustafs and stuff and kind of suppress that. Uh, then this is just from what I understand. And then a helicopter landed and picked me up and then brought me back. And um, it was the same helicopter crew that had gotten shot down with um, Matt McClintock. So they ended up getting awarded medevac crew of the year in Washington, D.C. the next year. But it's just crazy how it all happened because I was like, I couldn't have, in my mind, done anything better because I'm following every TTP tactic I know. And I was like, that ID was meant for me. And this is the shittiest way to say it. But, like, that's just the way it is. So, Yeah. Anyway, sorry, that was a long story, but Dude. yeah. So all that stuff's in that book, um, wow. Eagle Down. That's why I say it's like an uncomfortable truth. Yeah, so. hearing you say it is a little different than me reading it, um, bro. Did you have how many tourniquets were you carrying at that time? Three. You had three on you. Wow. Yeah, I had three on me. Did um, you end up getting it on, or did the guys get there? I had. I was. I strapped it on, but I was. I don't think I was aware enough to actually start tightening it. So mm. if it was just me, I would have been in a bad place. And there's, I got, I, as far as a shout out goes to our medical crew, mm. um, they, we trained real, we trained very, very realistic scenarios. We had a husband and wife field surgical team with us. We had a general surgeon and an orthopedic surgeon. And then our 18 Delta medics dudes were, we trained so hard to the point that like we were angry at them all the time. But that training saved my life because the guys that came in and rendered aid to me, we didn't have an 18 Delta right away. So they started doing the proper stuff and they said, they do, they saved my life for sure. Um, it was, it was crazy. I mean, they just like, I could have been dead, like dead, dead, especially with those other IEDs. So um, yeah, it was crazy. So tourniquets, both legs. How long did it take them to get to you? Do you know? Did they have to clear again, or did they just rush right in? I think they honestly, I think they rushed right in. Yeah. And from what I understand, it was just a couple minutes before they were able to get to me because the 18 Delta was just in the compound right next to us. So my warrant officer came to me, and he was my partner in our medical training on the lead up too, which is cool. So he he was the first person on the scene, and he helped me out. Um, and they got to me, and I guess, and, and this is like a testament to fitness because they said. Excuse me. They said that I was the worst injured, but my blood pressure and my pulse stayed 100% normal. So, and I was calm. And so my body shunted off all the, everything didn't start dumping blood. Didn't, I was probably in shock, but everything was so calm with me and everybody else that got injured was like screaming that it allowed them to work like very professionally and efficiently without freaking out. And I don't remember this, this is just what they mm -hmm. told me. Um, and I, I guess I made a couple jokes. I don't know. I don't remember, uh, but like, don't forget my legs or something like that. Like, no. some, yeah, I don't remember. That's just what they told me, but, wow. but that's, they said it was because of fitness level. We trained hard. Like you stay in shape, your body can handle more stuff. Um, so I, it, I just, I was super blessed from the, from the moment I got injured to the people that got me out of there, mm -hmm. they took amazing care of me. Um, they worked on me for a long time. I think I went through, um, about 60, when it was all said and done through recovery, 60 some transfusions of blood. Um, I almost lost my right index finger and thumb. I had four or five blood clots in my lungs that were like two centimeters in diameter pulmonary embolisms. I had bad fungal and bacterial infections that probably would have killed me 
five years ago, but now at this time they knew to put me on all the strongest stuff in the world right away because mm-hmm. that dirt is bad. Did you take it in the field or did they, or did they give you that ketamine before you had a chance to take it? Because I remember we carried those um, vacuum packed bags with like a few, like, like I don't know, yeah. five, six, seven, eight different things that you were supposed to take right away um, because of the infection. Yeah, I didn't have any of that. We didn't yeah. have any of that stuff. And yeah. so I don't know what point they gave me that stuff. I just, I know that I was under quarantine in the hospital. People had to come in in masks and stuff. But they gave me ketamine right away. And that ketamine dulled the pain a bunch. But uh, from what I understand, it, your mental state when you start ketamine affects like whatever hallucin- hallucinations you have. So I was in a war zone. And so when I got under ketamine. I was, I was like in hell making deals with the devil, like this crazy stuff. And then I was captured by the Taliban. And then I woke up in Walter Reed DC trying to rip out my, all my IV lines. I had like a central line into my jugular and I was trying to rip that thing out. Cause I thought I was captured. And so they ended up having to do a pick line and all these other things, but that's so you were really doing that. You were really I was, trying to, I was actually, I was like, I thought I was in, in chains or something. But the, the first thing I remember, the craziest thing I remember is I was on the flight from Germany to, to Walter Reed in DC and there's the there's the vent tube, the, the ET tube that's in you to keep you know keep you breathing, and they can breathe for you if they need to. I woke up as they were pulling it out of my mouth, and it has all these flanges, and I felt like it was Neo from the Matrix when he woke up because I was just like gagging as they pulled it out of my throat, and then I woke up, and then they wouldn't let me go back to sleep because that's when they found out that I had the blood clots in my lungs. So they're like on the flight, yeah, they were like slapping me and stuff, and like do not fall asleep because I would have probably died real quick after that. Because of the blood clots too. Dude. Yeah, it was gnarly, man. It was gnarly. How long did it take the helo to, to get there from from uh, uh, injury to getting out of that place? It had to have been, I mean, it had to have been less than an hour, probably 30 minutes, I would guess, because the gold, the golden hour. So when, when you go out on operations over there in recent years, you had to have a medical capability within an hour to get to you. Um, and I can't remember if it was to get to you and then back to a certain level of hospital mm-hmm. so that you can survive. Because if you're too far removed and you get hit, you're going to die. So everything had to be, all your operations had to be within an hour, the golden yes. hour. So I don't Man. think it was that long. Because Sangin's not that far from Kandahar, I don't think. And that's the heel took you to, to Kandahar? Kandahar, where my field surgical team, mm-hmm. actually, I honestly, I don't know. They might have taken us back to home into our base because I know our field surgical team worked on me. Okay. So either... They took me there or my field surgical team went to Kandahar because um, okay. that dude worked on my left leg for a long time because it was all there. Just the, the blood bridges that he couldn't connect him again to get blood flow. But he worked on me for a long time. And did they have a, was it a C-17 that took you to Germany? Maybe. I don't, I don't remember anything from the point of injury till waking up flying from Germany to D.C., and I know wow. I, I, I don't know. I haven't, a lot of times I haven't asked a lot of these questions too. And then I think about it. Like it's, I'm such, I'm such a person that focuses on the now and mm-hmm. I want to do like my goals and, and be in the moment that a lot of times, like I don't look at details on the back mm-hmm. end as much as I should, but I have no idea um, wow. as far as C-17. I'd imagine so. But right away, like it might've been just you mm-hmm. on that bird they i know that when i woke up in walter reed there was the dog handler and his dog were next to me okay in, in another room and unfortunately it wasn't like the most pleasant experience because the dog lost his tail his name's rocky he's a belgian male and the handler he got he got banged up with shrapnel and stuff in his back and the media found out that a dog got injured so there was this media post in a news article about Rocky the dog and it's a picture of him laying on his side with a muzzle and a purple heart on him 
and they loved it. So the news was in his room all over it and never acknowledged, never came into my room, no nothing that I got injured. So they went in his room and did the whole everything, you know, the, the parade and all that stuff, and then they left. So my family was pissed. Like, I'm laying there half dead, and uh, and nothing happened. So I'm, for, I'm very grateful that the dog and the handler survived. And at that time, I was super angry about it. Um, about that, but it, it's not, it doesn't in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. And something that I did to kind of overcome that anger is we got a dog not too long ago and named it Rocky. No way. So yeah, so it was like a cool turn of events with yeah. that. So um, oh, I'm just man. I try to like take the negative stuff and turn it into a yeah. positive on a lot of these things. Man, so you remember being waking up on the flight back to the states from Germany? Um, you're still drugged up. Mm-hmm. What are you? Do you remember what you're thinking at this point? I was just, I just wanted to go to bed. I was yeah. mad because they were, they pulled it out, and I was like, "What? What is going on?" I'm so angry, and then I'm like, "Okay, well, I'm just gonna go to sleep." And then they just start smacking me. Don't! They're yelling at me, "Do not go to sleep!" And and then all of a sudden, I just blacked out. And then the next thing you know, there's like blips of awareness waking up in Walter Reed, ripping out my lines, and then crying and looking. My wife's there, and I'm like, "What is going on?" And then I go back to bed, and then I wake up, and I'm in like intensive care, talking to nurses and doctors in a little better state. It was just like blips here and there because I stayed since I started me on ketamine over there. I stayed on ketamine all the way through Walter Reed to the end of December. Excuse me, when I transferred over to the Center for the Intrepid, which is at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. That's when they put me on opiates uh, mm. because they want to keep you on the same same okay. regimen of pain. But certain hospitals prefer different painkillers and all that stuff. So um, they wanted to keep me on the same ketamine throughout it. So, jeez, how long are you? How long is this process? I got hit in on December fourth, two thousand fifteen, and I out processed the army on December seventeenth, two thousand sixteen. So it was a year, which by their standards, I guess, is super quick because usually it could take a couple years. But I was like, I want to get back. I want to get better, and I want to get back to life. So I busted my ass. Were you at? You were in Texas that stayed in Texas from Christmas Day on 2015 all the way till 2016. Oh, so they got you to Texas quick, and yeah. we pushed super hard because my family wanted to see me. It's coming up yeah. on Christmas, and I remember certain lucid states were talking to the surgeons, and they didn't want to let me go because of the blood clots in my lungs and then the infections. And I would, they were able to get everything under control, and so they. They flew me, my mom, from Walter Reed on Christmas Eve to Texas. My wife caught a flight from Walter Reed to Arizona, packed up the kids and got her mom and drove 12 hours to San Antonio on Christmas Day and met me there. It was crazy. And ended up being a great place for me. It's way closer to, to home. And that was one reason why we wanted to be there because it's closer to Tucson. And you were there for a year? Yeah. Yeah. And multiple surgeries? You know what? I only had a couple. And, which is, uh, I'm very fortunate in the grand scheme of folks who've had my kind of injuries because you get revisions and all these other things. I had two skin grafts on my left leg because my left leg was in pieces. And so they had to take one skin graft and it didn't take, and they had to take another one, put it on there. And that was the last of my surgeries since 2016. Dude. But it was like, it was a, it was a year's worth of recovery. I had to, you know, you see all the specialists, the psychologists, the orthopedic surgeon, the physical therapist, the recreational, all this stuff. You have to see them all the way through. And that's your duty. Instead of going to work every day and performing your duty, your duty is all your appointments. Mm-hmm. So I, I busted my butt and I got to go do a, a lot of recreational events that helped me kind of regain some independence. Um, I mean, they got me my first, so I got hit in December. My first prosthetics that I started wearing were in March. 
And so I went home for Easter wearing two prosthetics in freaking March. I flew home, which was crazy. Um, and then in April, I went on a surfing event in California that was put on by a nonprofit. And then later in the summer, I did mountain biking and rock climbing. I got running blades, learned how to run. I started lifting in the gym. And then in October, I went and did the Army 10-miler run. Um, it was a run walk. It took me about three hours, and it was miserable, and I've never run again. But I did it. And then in that the February, after I, the second February after I got injured, I did half of the Baton Memorial Death March in White Sands, New Mexico. No way. Yeah. And then two years later, I did the whole Death March on my freaking legs. It took me like 14 hours. No. But, you know Jeff Houston? He did, he did that a few times, uh, SF guy, um, awesome tough. dude. Um, man, it's been, it's been a roller coaster, dude. And, and like I say, I'm so, I'm, I'm the kind of person I'm so ingrained in the present. I want to do these things. I'm not going to let anything freaking stop me. I'm going to teach myself how to do it. It's the work has been monumental. The pain has been monumental, but it's like, I get to, it's all led me. I get to sit here and just talk with you today. Tomorrow I get to go do this. It's like it, the work has been well worth any kind of struggle, man. It's been good. The pod cover by eight sleep as an author writing late into the night. And as a parent with three kids who get up early, I need every second of sleep I can get. That's where the pod cover by eight sleep comes in. Summer is reaching its apex and there's nothing worse than tossing, turning or sweating in the night because of summer heat. The pod cover by eight sleep will keep you cool all night, all the way down to 55 degrees Fahrenheit. So you wake up fully refreshed. The pod cover by eight sleep fits on any bed like a fitted sheet. The pod cover will improve your sleep by automatically adjusting the temperature on each side of the bed based on your and your partner's individual needs. It can cool down and warm up and adjusts based on the phases of your sleep and the environment that you're in. Invest in the rest you deserve with the eight sleep pod. I sleep great on mine, especially now in the heat of the summer. Go to 8sleep.com slash danger close and save $150 on the pod cover. Stay cool this summer with 8sleep. Now shipping within the USA, Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU and Australia. Remember, that's 8sleep.com slash danger close. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash danger close. How was it? Um, I guess what is your mental state throughout that year? Were you always like this? Like, oh, no. this happened. Are you like? What is your mental state from December to January, February, March? Like, what is what's that like? It's it's tough, dude. And uh, the the man, I mean, so like, I went from being in a combat zone in a, in in firefights, waking up in a recovery state, and. Um, it's just, it's hard to transition from that. And so I was on a ton of medications. I had blood thinners. I had, I was on synthetic, uh, marijuana for appetite enhancement, all the narcotics, uh, nerve killers, all kinds of stuff. And it's like, it kind of numbs everything. And I remember just initially the first couple of months, I was like, yeah, it's not so bad. I'm okay. And then I realized like, dude, I am drugged out of my mind. And so in May, I just quit everything and the doctors were pissed. I, I had like eight things. I just stopped taking them. They didn't wean you off. I just, on my own, I was just like, I'm done. And I was, I was like, I want to, were I they wanna, already weaning you no, off? No, they were just pumping you up. Th that's another thing. I never experienced any program within the VA to wean you off drugs. And I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but there was mm -hmm. no 
discussion of, hey, we need to work to getting you off of this at some point, wow. which can probably play into other folks having addiction issues. Yeah. And from my family, we have, we're susceptible to addiction, you know, in my family history. So I was already in my mind, I was like, I'm not staying on this stuff my whole life. And so in May, I was like, the world is too good. I'm too happy after losing my legs. I'm done. And I quit everything. Um, the doctors are pretty pissed. I had to go back on some blood thinners because of my lung clot, my blood clots. But it was a miserable, uh, miserable withdrawals. But after that, I was I, withdrawals from the drug withdrawals or the pain that you're not feeling. Drug for sure because you're. So, I had I had two kinds of um, oxycotton's, you know, all kinds. So I just felt like I had vertigo. The world was spinning. I had headaches. I was angry. I was tired for about a week. And after that, I kind of slowly came out of it. And then I was able to like deal with it. I was like, okay, this is what's happened. I can mentally deal with it. But in the beginning, I was pissed. I remember I would go to the store in my wheelchair with my family and I'd roll by in like a, like a clothes store and you'd roll by a mirror and I would see myself and turn and stare at myself. And I'd be so mad. I was like, cause I used to love running and all that stuff. And I was like, what is, what's happened to me? And then seeing yourself in the mirror and having people stare at you all the time. Good God. I mean, it still happens now. People stare and stare and have, ask questions. And most people are pretty cordial, but every now and then you get some weirdos. Mm. Um, and then, then you're like, okay, well, my plan, and uh, backing up a little bit, in October, November, before I got injured, I was talking to an active duty recruiter. I was going to go to Fort Bragg, go through their ascensions program, and then I wanted to go to third group in North Carolina or first group in Washington. So that was my plan. And my wife was on board and then I got blown up and I was like, you get, you get everything you work for stripped away in a moment. You have to like re-identify yourself. It was like, it was tough. And I remember talking to a psychologist cause you had to, and he said, you're, he's like, you're angry, you're sad, you're depressed. This is normal. Please understand that you're going through abnormal circumstances and this is 100% normal. And I, I, I understand that he's like, but what happens is you need to figure out coping mechanisms and you have to, you have to grow through this and move past this. And if you are stuck in this rut of being angry and sad all the time, that's when we need to talk more therapy options. And so it like, it helped me. It gave me, it's like, mm. okay, it's like, okay, I'm mad. It's okay. I can be mad because of all the stuff that happened. And then after that, I just, you know, how I, you know, how I was early talking about archery and the archery, the, the programs and the, the shop and everything. I go all in on everything I do. I want to be, I want to know everything I can. I want to be an expert in it. So that's what I did with uh, exercise. So I started working out. I got a little equipment grant for myself. Somebody gave me uh, some equipment. So I got CrossFit level one certified, adaptive certified, a couple other certifications. I started training myself and other people. And that it brought me out of it because when I was training other people, I was accountable to them for their success. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't be off my game. Yeah. I had to be a hundred percent. So it's just these little things, and I didn't even intentionally yeah. do them. Um, <coughs> and Dude, sorry, there's one more thing yeah. too. Um, when I was over in Afghanistan, I was super angry all the time because of what was going on. Just because of the situation that everything you're, you're it was in. just you're just constantly angry about that, and then you got it. Sometimes you got to be a little angry to survive over there. Like angry that you were put in this situation, and you're like, yeah. "What is going on?" Yeah, okay. you know, dudes dying and stuff. So I would go to my room every night, and I would listen to reggae music, and I'd play Tetris on my phone, and later talking to the psychologist it, they they seem to think that playing tetris like that is almost a form of emdr where it's like what's emdr it's uh i don't remember what it stands for but um <laughs> is that the electromagnetic thing um it's it doesn't have to be that but basically i've gone through it where a, a psychologist says okay think about a traumatic experience 
and I'm going to kind of put you sort of in a hypnosis state where what he did for me is he took his fingers back and forth. He's like, follow with your eyes. It's like rapid eye movement Mm. and supposedly puts you into REM and you think about the memory, but he tells you to think about it in a different ending to change, Mm. like rewrite it in your brain so that it's, it's a, not a negative experience. Mm. And I guess it's pretty, pretty successful across the board, but I would sit there after I got injured and I'd sit there and play Tetris and you're, you have colors and you're putting together a puzzle and you're completing a puzzle. And mm. then the puzzle finishes and you start another one. I'd think about all this stuff. And the, the, my psychologist was like, you probably did a lot of self therapy without knowing it. No, just playing dude. Tetris and the colors and everything and thinking about everything that happened. Dude, I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what he tells me. Oh, man, that is just so wild. What, um, what was rehab like in, uh, in, in Texas? When do they start, uh, working on talking to options and then getting you in the, the, the rehab facility there and who are you working with? And what was that like? They started rehab right away, even in the hospital. And yeah. I was, I was a little mad because I'm in pain. I'm laying in the bed and the physical therapist would come to the bed every day. It's time for you to move around. I'm like, Nope, but they started right away and I think it helped. And so what did they start with? Just, um, moving, sitting upright. They put bars overhead and try to see if you could pull yourself to a sitting position. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing if you can use your hips to raise your legs at all, just real basic stuff like that. And then, um, once you got to, once I got outpatient, um, we did a lot of stuff. We did this thing. It's called BFR blood flow restriction training. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a scientific method based upon an old bodybuilder style of training where they'd put on resistance bands on their biceps or legs and they would do lightweight exercises. Mm-hmm. And the theory is that your blood flow is restricted while you're lifting lightweight and it puts your body into fight or flight. Huh. So once you release, after you do the exercise and you release the band, floods it, floods it and puts natural HGH into your system. Huh. So they had a machine, like a blood pressure, blood pressure machine and they'd have a, a chart that says whatever weight you're doing, whatever your body weight is, whatever limb you're doing, this is how much weight, this is how much pressure you're going to put on your body. So you'd put like a blood pressure cuff on your arm, get like a five pound dumbbell and do a, a series of reps, overhead press, curls, raises, and then you really, and it freaking hurts, yeah. hurts. And then as soon as you release it, the blood flows and then uh, it's like a big relief. And they would do wow. stuff on my legs. And so they did a DEXI scan which is like a overall body composition scan of bone density and muscle and all that stuff before and after. And I did have a lot to gain back from, um, the injury, but I gained like 10 pounds of muscle in a month from that stuff, doing that stuff with minimal weight. Mm-hmm. So that helped a bunch. And then, um, they did like a lot of walking training too, like on with walkers and like, or like walking, holding something yeah. or just balance and stuff every day. And the folks at the center for the intrepid are phenomenal. They are awesome a world-class facility. They are so, so good at what they do. Man. It's, it was really good. Jeez, that is amazing. I mean, it's so inspiring. It's crazy. What, um, before that happened, you're, let's say, you're, you're captain and you're um, warrant officer. How are they kind of translating what they're getting from higher, your mission, what's going on um, to, like, to the sled dogs, to you guys? Like, are they acknowledging that this is friggin' insane, but here, here's how we're going to deal with it. What were they, what, what was that oh, yeah. kind of, you know, relationship like with, uh, with your leadership in your, uh, in your ODA? So the leadership of a team or in really in any scenario should be like a shit shield. They should, they should block everything and shield the folks 
under them mm-hmm. and then filter things down to them. And that's what our, our guys did because okay. they, re- they realized that a lot of the stuff that we were being pushed out the door to do was we're minimally manned, minimally equipped. And it's very, very, very difficult and very, very uh, dangerous. And not to say that we're risk adverse, but you do like a risk assessment of what you're going to yeah, try to mitigate. And if you're going to go a place where you're more likely going to take a lot of casualties, why, why would you do it? We'd look at other alternatives. And so, um, and, and I'm, I would imagine it's pretty similar in the SEALs, but in SF, the missions come from the ground up. So we, so like me as a fox and like all the other guys, we would look at what our environment is. We mm. look at what our targets are. We would plan missions, create courses of action. And we would say, this is what we're doing. Here you go, next level higher. You guys need to support us through it. But this environment, because it was so rapidly changing, we got a ton of missions shoved down our throat and coming from the top down, which is difficult because if you're trained and you know how to do things a certain way and then they come the opposite direction, there's going to be some friction. But at the same time, the leadership up top is adapting to this rapidly changing environment. And if a province is falling and it's their responsibility, it's difficult. So that's why I would never want to, that'd be a very difficult job to have. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of butting of heads with that kind of stuff. But our leadership was mitigated as best they could because we knew the operation environment that we were at. So they, they were well aware. And, and honestly, it was a stressful time for all of us. Like there was a lot of, a lot of just deep discussions and arguments and stuff because a, you get a bunch of alpha type guys that want to do things their own way. You put them in this environment where two days in country, we took serious casualties and then we're, and, and the war had just ended. So we're, we're at that point. Where we're like, well, what mm-hmm. are we doing here? We weren't supposed to be doing this. You guys aren't going to equip us and you want us to go out and go, kill a bunch of bad dudes, but you're just kind of like, you don't want anybody in the news to know about it too. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like proxy war kind of crap. So, um, it was tough. There was, um, there's this place called Kajaki in Hellman and it's, there's a dam there. That's, um, a main, uh, main dam in the area of the Hellman river Valley and it controls all the water source. And I can't remember who started the construction. It might, it may be in, there's some Russian, some British, something like that. There might've been some Chinese money coming through there. But we got word that the dam was under attack by the Taliban mm-hmm. and the cons- the contractors that were working in and refurbishing it were leaving and portion of had left. So they're like, you guys, it's already made the news. So you guys need to go secure that dam. So we went in, but they weren't, n- w- nobody was supposed to know that we were there. Like there's no boots on the ground, quote, quote, kind of thing. So we got there and it was the weirdest environment because you get there, you assess, you say, there's a bad guy. Let's go create a mission. Let's go get him. And uh, when we got there, we met up with our Afghan counterparts and they're like, no, no, you need to hold up. Like, we know that you see, you know, a bunch of Taliban entrenching over there, digging IEDs and creating fighting positions on the main road in and out of this area. We see that, but we have a deal with them to protect the farmers and the civilians that nobody's going to fight during the day mm-hmm. and nobody's going through there until the end of the harvesting season. So we're only going to fight at night and we're just sitting there like we're literally watching them. So we had to sit and just sit and wait. So we started planning missions. We got we got a bunch of like pretty solid mortar positions laid in, and we got all our, our range cards and everything, and we planned some missions. And so we we infilled. We took like a Mark 19 on the back of a, a Ranger, and we infilled. It was not quiet at all, but they knew we were coming, and uh, we got to our, our forward position before we sent in the, the commandos to go in and actually clear the objective. And the commandos, the colonel, the commander could speak English, so our, our officer, our captain was on the horn and he's like, Hey, we need air support. And they're like, Nope, you get no air support. You get nothing. You get a drone and that's it. It wasn't even an armed drone. 
And so the commandos were almost in the objective and their colonel heard that on the radio and, and he called them back, and came all the way back. And, was, and so we ended up not even doing that mission because of that. It was nuts. Um, but then as we spent a couple days there, we threw down a couple mortars. Um, we took a couple sniper fire. We were doing like, like some recon, like into the city driving around, but nothing really came of it. Mm. And then we just left because we couldn't do anything. Um, and our commandos got caught. That was part of the issue we had where, our commandos were being pushed everywhere. They got called back to the main base and we had to go with them. So we just left in the environment pretty much the same way as what we found it. We did nothing other than just show up and that was it. So, I mean, we're just dealing with that kind of stuff the whole time. Um, and so our, our, like I said, our commanders were taking as much shit as they could and filtering it from the team. Um, but it was hard, super hard Dude, kind of stuff. So that is why, how long did those guys, stay um after the how, how long was that deployment for the the guys how much longer were they in afghanistan oh man i can't maybe february okay a couple more months yeah so it, it, so i got hit in december and the in january was a real bad event it's also in that book it's where matt mcclinton got killed so basically the the team went back into marja but came in on helos and air assets were limited in the theater and um like drones and c-130s and and um, Apaches and stuff were limited in theater. So our guys, they had to allocate certain assets to certain uh, provinces and kind of stack them and make sure that it was like, it was constantly moving because there wasn't enough. And so um, our dudes went back into Marja. They went back, we're going to go after a bad dude, like one of the guys on our target list. And so they were going to be there for one period of darkness and uh, in, get there at night and then get picked up the next, the next morning. Mm -hmm. Well, the weather rolled in and assets got scattered. And so these guys had to stay for two or three period of darkness and they were not equipped for that. They, mm -hmm. they brought some extra supplies with their commandos and everything, but the Taliban know that weather can affect our air assets. So as soon as that weather rolled in, they started hammering them. It became like a Black Hawk down situation because that's when Ryan Ranowski got shot in the leg with that round that came over the fence. They tourniqueted him. Hilo came in, tried to rescue him and it, it hard down aircraft i don't know how high it was off the ground but i just know it crash landed the next one came in and got shot up so they were there surrounded by all sides in marja which is a awful area and so they were there for a while and they were looking at potentially saving one magazine left because they're like we're going to get run over set one magazine aside do not shoot that until they start coming up on the walls and so matt mcclintock and a couple other two other dudes were like we got to go clear a landing zone for ryan because he's gonna he's gonna go into shock. He's gonna get compartment syndrome. He's gonna yeah. die. So they 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 snuck out the compound and then they found a little wadi, like a real shallow wadi. And they're crawling in the water in the wadi. And they had a defilade fire from a PKM came in and hit Matt right in the head. And he was still alive. I mean, he's gonna he was gonna die for sure because it was a really bad like straight to his head through his helmet um, in there. And um, so they called. Um, hey, we just have we had a, an eagle get shot. And still no air support. So they had to drag him through the canal all the way back to the building. And after, I don't know how long it was, like 30 minutes, an hour, he passed away. And they called Eagle down. And then all of a sudden, air assets came their way. And they had uh, dropped a couple JDAMs, a couple 500-pounders, and the Taliban were gone. So it, so they were requesting air support the entire time. And, t and it took somebody dying and getting killed for them to realize, we need to send air support their way. And as soon as they did, it was over. And so they flew out. And then the team was just pissed. The cat, the captain, they, they went, they went and just, they went to Bagram and just reamed the command. They're like, we're not going out unless you can assure us that we're going to get the proper support we need to do these missions. Cause it's costing people's lives. 
Dude. So, and that was in January. And I remember hearing about that when I was in the hospital and I, and I felt super guilty because that was a mission I planned. Like I was, I was like, I planned a mission that got sidelined and stacked in the to do later mission thing. It's like, we need to go get this dude. And I got hit before I could go with him on the mission. And it was just like survivor's guilt, man. It was bad. But, but then I just realized I was like, I can't change anything. I was like, they sacrificed their lives for our freedom. I was like, I'm going to live the best possible life that I can so I don't squander it. So I got all those dudes' pictures up on the wall in my gym. See it every single day when I'm in there. So it's been good. Gosh. I I think there had been a time in the war where if if you had somebody up front, metal detector, dog, alerted, whatever, um, found an IED, certainly multiple IEDs. Mm -hmm where you would have pulled off that target and dropped a 500 pounder, thousand pound, whatever on that thing. They um, wouldn't let us, we were, we requested it. They're like the civilian casualty estimate is too high. And even after I got blown up and we were, they were like, this is a factory. They're like, we will not drop uh, air or not drop a bomb on it. So they, they bipped it, blew, blew it in place. And then they got hammered afterwards for blowing up like essentially a whole compound as best they could. They didn't have a ton of stuff, but that because of the civilian casualty estimate, like there was, the command was incredibly risk adverse during that time because in, in part because it's also in that book, but in Kunduz, in Kunduz up in northern Afghanistan, right before I got injured, there was an incident where there was a miscommunication between air support C-130 and people on the ground and a Doctors Without Borders site that was that was hard, like was tending to civilians and Taliban alike got blown up by a C-130 and that that destroyed any chance of us getting air support. So the command had to halt, do investigations and they're super, super risk adverse. And we had to write detailed reports of every single time we would use any air support at all. So that affected a lot of stuff on the battlefield. Cause it's a doctors without borders. It's a high profile incident. So mm-hmm. man, yeah. man. So what do you, so what are you thinking in August of 2021? When you're mm-hmm. watching or, or before that, are you watching provinces fall? Are you paying attention to what's going on? Or bit. do you find like, certainly in August, you can't not, you can't escape, uh, you know, the news then now, you know, crickets, but August of 2021, what are you thinking when you see what happened uh, during our withdrawal? I'm, I'm thinking 100% military and political failure, 100% because you've had, years and years and years to do something and it just kept the the buck kept getting passed to the next person you'd say the the people that were in charge would say everything's fine you know everything's fine we're making a little progress here and there and then the next person would come in and be like realize that it was really bad but then put on a facade of everything's fine and pass it to the next person and it got to a point where they had failed so many times that they needed to get out but how they did it was the worst possible way I could even imagine. Like, like they left so many people to stranded to die. I mean, there's the video of the baby being tossed over the fence. My wife was like, I'm going to go adopt that baby. Like she kept tabs on it to make sure that it got somehow she found out that it got adopted or taken care of. But like we were watching her like, what is going on? Like how, how did we go from trying to go, you know, nation build after the fact, after we want to go kill bin Laden and help people, to go to that, just like we're just gonna throw you to the wolves. So, I'm. I mean, what do they say? Conspiracy theories are true. A couple years later, there's something that happened. There's something going on that I don't know. I'm not privy to an information, but there's something happened to trigger that because that defies all common sense of how you would do something. There's common no sense. common sense yeah. at all. There's no strategy. It was 
pure turmoil. And I'm sure there may have been some sort of plan, but whatever it was was just an utter failure. And it's a and it's a kick in the face to anybody that's ever been over there, sacrifice their lives, put everything in line for it to just forget about it. You know, um, it's just it's awful, man. And 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 part of me had to I, once I saw what was going on for my mental sanity, I had to stop looking at it so much because I was like, it is it is destroying myself. And so I had to like put my head down and, and think to myself, what can I affect? Cause I can't go over there right now. I know a lot of dudes like Tim Kennedy and guys are going over there and making a big difference. I was like, what can I do within my bubble? So I was like, I'm going to be a good father to my kids. Cause they're the next generation that's going to affect change. I'm going to be a good person to people around me. I'm going to help people where I can, and I'm going to affect good inside my bubble. And that's what I can do. Because if I sit there and I just like read Facebook or the news mm-hmm. all the time, I'm going to become an angry person and it does nothing. Mm. So I was like, I got to be informed. It's this balance. It's like a burden you got to bear. Uh, but I was like, I just got to affect good where I can because I was so mad, man. I mean, it just, there's no, no common sense to any of that stuff. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Common sense was definitely lacking. Yeah, man. Oh, brutal. And so what do you tell you when you're working with, uh, with guys, let's say an the uh, adaptive archery shoot or you're, uh, somebody contacts you who, uh, was wounded overseas or, uh, what, what do you, what do you talk to them about? What do they, what do you pass on to them from your experience? I, the first thing I bring up is that you're not alone. And cause I know when you get into that dark place, you can feel, you can isolate and be like, nobody understands me. Nobody cares. Nobody knows what I'm going through. And I, and I try to say, you know, it's, you may not understand and I'm, you may not think I'm being genuine, but you are not alone and, um, reach out if something happens and out, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking some thoughts that are, you're going to hurt yourself. Cause that's a big thing. It's a pretty apparent thing as far as suicide rates go. It is rampant. And my thought is that if I can help at least save one person through what I've learned, then it's a mission success. But as far as archery goes, <laughs> I say, listen, you're going to think I'm some sort of nerd. You're not going to think this makes any sense at all. But archery is incredibly therapeutic. It is active meditation right there because you have to have ultimate mental focus to be able to do this kind of stuff, like shoot these shots, like John Dudley, the stuff that he does. The guy's mind is like a steel trap. It's it's incredible. And on the tagline for the shop we have is called the pursuit of mastery. And it's not like you're going to get there. You're just going to continually pursue this elusive goal. So what I tell folks is the same thing. So really it's like you cannot think about anything at all in your mind except for the arrow. Say you had a bad day. Say you got fired from a job. Say you're in pain. Say your bills are due and you ain't got no money. The second you draw back that bow and you're aiming on the target, you're, you're, the memory in your mind is full. You have no capacity to think for anything else. And I was like, the more you do it, the more you're going to realize it is meditation. It's going to make you happy. And I have not met a single person yet that doesn't draw back and aim and fire and hit that foam or whatever target and hear the sound. and does not smile the first time it is. It is like an absolute truth, universal truth that people and people shoot and they hear it and they smile. Now they may not do it forever, but while they're doing it, they love it. And my whole family, all my family that were up here, the mm-hmm. for tech, the ever the reoccurring comment was that the archery community is amazing. Everybody's friendly. They'll go out of their way to help you. They'll talk to you. There's no hoity-toity. There's no uh, limited clicks. You're gonna find that in everything. But everybody's so kind and friendly, mm-hmm. and uh, that's what I've seen. And so I've I've been able to share archery with a lot of people because it was shared with me, mm-hmm. and and it's it's been good. I mean, Jonathan Lopez, I met him on the mountain when I first met you. 
And now he moved to Tucson with his girlfriend and his kids, and he's working at the shop with me. Awesome. It's awesome. Too so, cool. Man. Yeah, it's been good. Man, I'm so fired up for you. Um, man, and these bows right here. So this is, I didn't have a Matthew. So I had, so I asked, the first one I asked you before was a Matthews, I think. So this one right right here um, that you built up for me. And the other ones are uh, Hoyt, Hoyt there, Hoyt this. This is the Origin. So first Sitka, and then as soon as Origin had theirs, I called you back. I'm like, I needed one in, yeah. in uh, the Origin uh, Raptor camo. And then uh, these are the families. I think that's my daughter's, that's my wife's, I think. Um, our son's is inside somewhere. But uh, if somebody wants something from from you like how, what's the best way to to do it they call the the number uh that's on the website and say hey i'd love a uh a hoyt or hey i have a hoyt can they send it or, or if they have a matthews or they want a matthews how do you do it for people that can't go mm -hmm. to tucson and and how much of the business is people doing that like me and me i, I send you people from you know that aren't, oh, yeah. aren't in tucson um but uh is, is the majority of it people that come into the store try things out figure out what they want you guys build up the bow have that relationship with that customer and then how much of it is from from outside people calling in and you sending these bows out so i think firstly i gotta just thank you man because everything that you've done like it is an incredible honor for me to just be able to do this because i love it and share this with you and then get you to the point where you can shoot some arrows it's been a, you're super generous on all the stuff that you've done so thank you very much of man. course it's course. been it's been awesome as far as the as the bows go so like we talked about earlier archery shops are um, region specific so you're not we in order to not saturate the market and to keep all the archery shops alive because they're the lifeblood of the industry we, we sell them locally so the, the way you can do it if you're interested is you can get in touch with us through the website social media phone all that stuff i run all the social media myself um you can call text any of that stuff but if you want a bow i, ca I cannot just take an order online or over the phone and ship it to you you have to come to the shop mm. and place the order and then i can get it to you i can then ship it to you or you come in and buy it in person and then we can get you a bow case and stuff um mm. because i i don't want to infringe on that i love what the archery industry has done yeah um and i'm not i don't want to do stuff shady under the radar so if you come and purchase it in person and place the order then i can get it to you or you can come buy it and get fitted. It's preferable to come in and get fitted and do everything because it's very personal. We got to measure your wingspan, get your yeah. draw length, how many pounds you can pull back. And then we actually sit there and we show you how we build it. And then we get you on our range. We have a range in the store and we show you how to shoot it properly because we want to start you off on the right mm -hmm. foot path. So, so yeah. That's how we do it. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, uh, man, stick sniper archery. I love the name. As soon as I heard that name, I'm like, yes, yeah. <laughs> freaking love it. Got the hat, got t-shirts, the, the whole, the whole deal. So I just love having bows for everybody in the family. It's nothing but great for the individual, for the family getting outside. Phones are down. You're concentrating on something that's very meditative. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just, once again, you are in the moment, like you said, that's the best way to capture it. You're nowhere else. You're just right there in the moment. So, and then, uh, expansion. So what's in the, what's the, the future hold here? So like I was saying earlier, I purchased the shop and they had maximized like the <laughs> physical mom and pop shop. And so I want to bring it in to the modern society right now. So we're working on, we created an online shop so we can sell swag hats and shirts mm -hmm. and stuff right now. We'll start adding um, accessories and stuff. Like I said, I can't do the bows, but sights, arrows, rests, you know, quivers, any any of the other accessories we got, we can sell those online. That will be added. 
Um, I'm going to, probably in the next couple of years, I'm going to um, move locations mm. and I want to get myself a bigger range. Um, the goal is to build a shop centered around a range. Um, Arizona is super hot, so it's difficult to shoot outside, but I want to have a destination mm-hmm. um, that people can come and enjoy it. You know, maybe not something as big as Top Golf, but something r- like big, like you can do all your archery needs there. You can shoot, you, we can do Olympic archery training. People can qualify to go to like the Lancaster Classic or the Vegas shoot or stuff like that. Nice. Um, just have, I, and Tucson is a great place for archery and um, there's a lot of potential for it. So that's, we're going to keep growing. We're keep, we got PSE is local to Tucson, right? They make all their yeah. there, So we get to talk to them every day. Um, and work with them on that stuff. So it's got my PSEs yeah. right over there somewhere. I think it's on the, yes, yeah, on the table over there, uh, since Dud was here yesterday. Um, but yeah, Pete came to Pete Shepley came to my uh, yeah. book signing yeah. in, uh, Phoenix in Scottsdale. He's right in the front row. Yeah. It was awesome. Um, so my NTN 33. So that was, uh, that was really cool to, that he was there. I got up to the front. I'm like, Oh, no way. Like, <laughs> Him and Jenny are awesome. So people. Cool. They've done a lot. They did help us out quite a bit when we did that veteran program for through Operation Enduring Warrior. Awesome. They helped out a bunch. And oh, very super cool. Super grateful for that. Yeah, I love that. Love that bow. Love all these bows. Um, man, dude. That's awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, for coming up here and spending an extra day after after TAC. And if anybody doesn't know what TAC is, Total Archery Challenge, go check it out online. They're all over the country now, and they're such a blast. So much fun. Been doing them for, for years before before I got out of the military, uh, taking my daughter up there and shooting that Yeti. They had the Yeti and the dinosaur course set up for the kids at the one that we went to. And so that was a blast, but man, thank you for everything. And man, for the inspiration, think about you all the time. I'm like, yeah. And, and I think a lot of people that follow you online are inspired daily and you'll never know how many people that you you've inspired along the way. Cause the majority aren't going to reach out and, and tell you, but it's a, it's a huge impact and not just veteran community. Um, it's, it's everybody. So thank you for, uh, man, thank you for being you and let's go, uh, let's go sling some arrows. Let's go try this course. Let's do it, man. Awesome. Excited. Thanks brother. All right, man. Thanks for your time. Black Raffle Coffee Company. You can help Black Raffle Coffee raise $1 million to benefit veterans through the boot campaign. All you need to do is grab a can of ready to drink coffee online or from your local grocery or convenience store. The Boot Campaign is one of the most renowned veteran-focused nonprofits in the country, working tirelessly to provide life-changing aid and benefits to service members and their families. Join forces with Black Rifle and the Boot Campaign from May through the end of the year, where every can of ready-to-drink coffee you buy will contribute to making this massive donation possible. Black Rifle Ready-to-Drink Coffee is available in several great-tasting flavors on the Black Rifle Coffee website at your local convenience or grocery store. And no matter where you are, you can fuel your caffeine fix while supporting veterans. Every time you crack open a can of ready-to-drink, you'll be making a huge difference in the lives of veterans and their families. Black Rifle Coffee is committed to serving the veteran community. And with your help, we can all continue to make a difference. Let's raise a can together to keep fueling Americans for a good cause. Check out blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose. Drink up. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. Here, joined by Caleb Brewer of Stick Sniper Archery. Had an awesome conversation on the podcast, known each other for the past few years. And 
made it into the last book, Only the Dead. So I wanted it to be a surprise for you <laughs> in here. So uh, Rafe reached behind the seat and produced a ball cap. Stick sniper archery. That's, uh, that's Reese saying that. Uh, yeah, Caleb Brewer's archery shop in Tucson. Figured you might want to uh, hide that mane because he's been in, the, in prison here for the last few months. So got a little stick, stick sniper archery in there. Caleb Brewer's archery shop, Tucson. So any archers or uh, people that want to get into archery or bow hunting, passing through Tucson, stop at stick sniper archery and say hello. And what do we have here? I wanted you to maybe talk through uh, your setup today. Yeah, awesome. Well, appreciate you having me here. Yeah, this man. is my personal bow that I'm going to be shooting this year for hunting, and I just got done shooting Total Archery Challenge with this. Nice. Um, this is the PSE Unite. It's a knock-on archery collaboration with PSE. Knock-on archery is run by John Dudley, who's an amazing, influential character in our industry and has taught a lot of people. So this is the creation, the brainchild of him and PSE. Um, and if you're familiar with any of his other bows, this is essentially an aluminum version of the Levitate. Levitate was his bow last year. It's a carbon model, um, and this is an aluminum version. Different, a little bit lower price point, same performance, same spec. So it's a 32-inch axle-to-axle. Um, it comes in three cam variations. Um, this is the E2 cam uh, for a little bit longer draw, a little bit speed. The S2 cam is a little bit smaller. Um, and then there's the tried-and-true EC2 camage, which is what PSE has used over the years, and everybody loves the smoothness and everything. So there's a bunch of different options. One of the cool features about this bow is it has their their new shim technology. So on previous uh, bow models on uh, across the board, your shims on your spacers between your cams, you had to actually press the bow, take it out of the press with the strings off, decompress the limbs, pull the axle out, take the shims out, and swap them in different positions. And at this one, you just press the bow, um, and you can actually pull the spacers out there like a little, like a C-clamp chip thing. You can easily tune the bow if you need to paper tune your cam one way or the other. Um, you should do it in a bow press, and there's a lot of safety um, requirements, but it's significantly easier to tune this than in previous models. Um, also, on this model, you have the ability to add the front Picatinny mount. There's a bracket that you can bolt right here if you want to do a front quick grip or the, the Picatinny mount right here. And also, they have that option on the back. Or the rest. So my setup right now, um, I have this set at 72 pounds. My draw length is 28 and a half. These are 500 grain arrows, Eastern Axis arrows, and I'm running the 75 grain stainless steel half outs. And I'm getting about 278 feet per second out of this thing, which is a pretty good speed because these are heavy arrows. Um, I'm using the QAD Ultra Rest right here, uh, cable driven. I got. Um, AAE stabilizers with a 10 degree downturn. I'm using a black gold sight. I got this thing dialed into 120 yards. It's a five pin slider. So you can dial in your sight pretty low and get some good distance out of it. Um, I also have a sling, super cool innovation by Jacked Gear. Um, it allows you to hold your, uh, to sling your bow, strap it or whatever, and it's magnetic. So right here, there's a strap it comes in either a Velcro strap or a bolt that bolts a magnet through right there. And there's another magnet on the strap, and it's silent, and it just clicks in out of the way. So, for instance, when I'm on the mountain doing total archery challenge, I just sling it across my back like this because I have to use hiking poles forever. So, like, I just sling it like a rifle right here. When I'm ready to go, I can take it, and I can sling it like a purse like this. Or when I'm done, I just put it, the sling back where it goes. Super easy. Boom, out of the way. Um, one of the cool things about this is if you're going to hunt, you need to use your binoculars. 
you just rest your elbows right on it. And it's like a mobile platform right here. So super cool innovation. It's a veteran-owned company. And we're really happy to have these. And I kind of need it. I can't really go anywhere without it. So it's been awesome. Nice. And that's J-A-K-T for anybody that's, uh, yeah, wants to check those out. J-A-K-T. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Check that out. That's pretty sweet. P-S-E, uh, John Dudley, knock on, jacked gear on there. Uh, that's a slick setup. Yeah, it looks good. Rule oh, number man. one is always look cool, and this bow looks cool. So <laughs> there you go. It does. <laughs> man, awesome. All right, well, let's go uh, Let's go outside and shoot it. Sounds good, man. That's sweet. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Caleb Brewer, follow him on Instagram at ckbrewer, and be sure and check out Stick Sniper Archery at sticksniper.com. Also, Stick Sniper on Instagram. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time. Take care out there, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.